Majority Report with Sam Cedar. The destiny of America is always safer in the hands of the people than in the conference rooms of any elite. Sam Cedar. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The Majority Report. With Sam Cedar. <laughs> Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? It is Thursday, February 29th, 2024. My name is Emma Vigeland, in for Sam Cedar, and this is the five time award winning Majority Report. We are broadcasting live steps. From the industrially ravaged Gowanus Canal in the heartland of America, downtown Brooklyn, USA. On the program today, Carlos Rojas Rodriguez, immigrant justice organizer on the Democrats' right-wing pivot on immigration. And later in the show, Kina Collins, progressive candidate activist in the 7th District of Illinois, running for Congress. Also on the program today, the official death toll, a huge undercount, hits 30,000 in Gaza after the IDF opened fires on a crowd of starving Palestinians swarming a rare aid truck. The UN says half a million people in Gaza are on the brink of starvation as Israel continues to block most aid and the U.S. weighs dropping aids from the aid from the sky, which begs the question, maybe force Israel to let it in on the ground. The Supreme Court hands, that wasn't a question, it's a demand, (laughs) should be at least. The Supreme Court hands Trump a massive victory, agreeing to hear his bogus presidential immunity case, which would delay his federal election subversion trial potentially until after the election. As the Supreme Court weighs whether or not to keep Trump on the ballot, they will. An Illinois judge also rules to remove him from the primary ballot. Another court denies Trump's bid to delay his over $450 million civil fraud penalty. A government shutdown is averted for now. A short-term funding bill has been agreed upon. But Mitch McConnell doesn't seem to think the prospects are pretty good because he's announcing he will step down as Republican leader by the end of the year. The party's too extreme for Mitch McConnell now. That same party just blocked Tammy Duckworth's bill to protect IVF along Senate unanimous consent lines. Un, uh, un, uh, yeah, unanimous? Unanimous consent. Ununanimous. That wouldn't make any sense. And in the House, Republican Anna Luna mysteriously withdraws her co-sponsorship of the IVF protection bill. Alabama Republicans scramble to undo their state Supreme Court ruling because it's so bad politically. The IVF one. The Supreme Court appears divided on the legality of a Trump-era bump stock ban for machine guns meaning they could be to the right of Trump on this. Another botched execution in Idaho by lethal injection. 
Stay safe, Texas. The largest wildfire in the state's history has now burned over a million acres. And lastly, a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine finds that long COVID may lead to measurable cognitive decline. If you are 65 or older, go get your new COVID booster. You can do so now. All this and more on today's Majority Report. Welcome to the show, everybody. It is Leap Day. It is Leap Day. Um, my people may be familiar with my my good friend Dan from the internet. He is a Leap Day baby. I'm giving him a shout out right at the top of the show here because uh, that's quite rare a Leap Day baby. So he turned seven today. Congratulations to Dan. Um, but yeah, only comes around every four years. I'm a big Thirty Rock fan. Uh, there's an episode called Leap Day. My controversial opinion is it's the worst episode of the show. And I say that with a heavy heart because there's really no bad episodes. There's always good, funny stuff in every 30 Rock episode. But uh, it's just myself and Bradley today for now before we get joined by our friends in the fun half, Matt Binder and Brandon Sutton. Uh, Matt is on his way uh, to go to a wedding, so he will not be with us for the rest of the week, but we do have a great show for you today. Um, Let's start here with the Trump story. The Supreme Court has announced that it will decide whether or not Donald Trump has presidential immunity from prosecution, just generally. They've decided they'll take up the case. They could have dismissed it out of hand. And that would have meant that the trial would have been on track to take place before the 2024 general election. Now, this delays it significantly because the Supreme Court will be hearing arguments the week of April 22nd. And then they'll have to make a decision probably in June. And that is exactly what Trump wanted, because that means that the judge will not be able to hold a trial in time, most likely, for the election. Now, this could potentially change, but legal experts say it would be very difficult. The earliest, it seems like a trial on this particular case, the Jack Smith Federal Election Interference Probe. The earliest it appears it could even happen would be October. So the, the because of the circus of the election, it seems overwhelmingly likely that this will have to happen after the election. And so the fact that they're even taking this case up is a huge, huge win for Donald Trump because the claims that he's making are so unconstitutional on their face. Like, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to rule in his favor. This is their way to have it both ways. They can help their buddy out, the guy that put them on the Supreme Court, the party that put them on the Supreme Court, the party that they're ideologically aligned with, while at the same time not giving the president immunity from all criminal justice. It's like the most unconstitutional thing on its face. So the D.C. Circuit Court had already shut this down. Trump appealed. And the Circuit Court decision was incredibly clear. But here's uh, Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskrevic. Uh She reacted here on CNN 
to the news, the breaking news, and this was uh, her assessment. But the fact that they delayed even this order, this order that basically just says we're going to take it up, that they delayed it for two weeks, uh, suggests that they certainly did not embrace the urgency that special counsel Jack Smith tried to impose upon them way back in December when Jack Smith went to the Supreme Court and said, Justices, please take up this case now so that we can get a clear answer. This is yours to answer. And then, you know, once the D.C. Circuit, once the Supreme Court said, no, we're not coming in and the D.C. Circuit ruled, you know, that was another several weeks. So uh, President Trump's former President Trump's effort to run the clock has a partner in the Supreme Court at this point, even though. Jake, probably in the end, the justices will agree with the D.C. Circuit and say and reject President, former President Donald Trump's claim of absolute immunity. But what good will that do for any kind of trial uh, before we're really into the heat of this next presidential election? That is uh, quite, quite aligned with uh, my reading on this as well. You know, there's been in the past... Not this claim of total immunity. I mean, it's not, as I said, not in the Constitution. It's just made up by Trump, just made up that he has legal immunity from criminal prosecution because he's the king. Oh, I mean, the president. Oh, and apparently he's still the president, even though he lost the election Um, running for a third term. Shouldn't shouldn't that shouldn't disqualify me, you know, because they stole it from me. Isn't this your third term, Mr. President? I thought you're still the shadow guy or. I'm having trouble keeping track of the conspiracy theories, Bradley. Well, well, it's kind of the the it's almost the parallel to sort of like the um, Biden crime family aspect that like Biden is like this doddering old man, but also the the you know lead ringleader of a of a uh, extremely intricate crime syndicate. Yeah. And, while, and then on the other end, it's like Trump because he was president. But also, in some people's minds, and maybe his own, is still pre- or should be president. He was spurned from his rightful presidency, should be immune from any potential criminal liability. But because the doddering old man crime syndicate leader is the so-called president, he needs to be punished and can't be immune from that criminal is amazing. prosecution. Yes. So it's also so that's the other like I think contortion that they have to do, which is that Trump desperately needs presidential immunity for a for some communal reason, right. for some countrywide right. national reason for the constitution. But, but <laughs> presumably, the second he gets in office, based on every single other public statement he's ever made, he's going to prosecute all of his political uh, rivals, including the former president. If if Biden was the former president, I'm old enough. To, I'm old enough to remember. Lock her up. Lock her up. Right. Lock and yet, her up. And right. Yet immunity. Presidential immunity is so. It's like existentially important <laughs> to, to Trump, and also and also even Trump in some of his statements says like. For all presidents, not just me. Does that include Joe Biden, the guy you're very expressly like, I want to throw in jail? Yes, it's like, Biden. <laughs> it's anybody who opposed him. Like, I mean, he's spoken about broadly his political opponents, but even that claim, like his, it was, I hate immigrants, I hate Muslims, and I hate Hillary Clinton and think she's a criminal. And then, like, in the lead up to that election fox news was saying that even though comey and the fbi was not going to charge her that there and there was not going to be like criminal charges from the fbi or from the doj about this 
even with that, they said, well, she's going to obstruct fur further charges into her. And this is why she's such a criminal. The guy is now taking it to the Supreme Court and has stacked the Supreme Court with judges who are going to help him out. And this is the exact scenario that they claimed Hillary Clinton was going to do once she was anointed as the president in 2016 that Trump is doing in practice right now. Um, yeah, it's not a novel uh, observation on my end here, but it's like if this if this if you substituted Donald Trump's name um, for like a more, um, you know, ethnic or global south sounding name. Yes. If, and, and, and say this was happening in like, you know the Central African Republic or something like <laughs> right. that. This would just be like a little brief news chyron of like, oh, look at this hilariously corrupt thing going on in a far-flung part of totally, the world. Totally, totally. Third former, world. Where, what, what are you going to do about where, it, right? Where a former president is seeking re-election, saying the election was stolen from him. He's appointed three Supreme Court justices to tip the scales to hopefully render him completely immune from criminal prosecution. People would just be like, yep, you know, things you know, are totally. Everyone, destabilizing it's over so there. It's so corrupt over there. And then you'll have Eric Prince come on tv and say well we gotta, so we gotta recolonize africa yeah, we we've got to do it and, and and like this is also not a novel thing to bring up but the supreme court has ruled on a similar issue before in nixon's instance back in 1974 the justices it was a it was the warren court right so it's it's more liberal but rehnquist was on that court a very conservative justice it was a unanimous decision where they decided that Nixon, who was claiming that uh, he had executive privilege and so they should not be able to use the sensitive information, the tapes that recorded him basically, um, uh, you know, walking through the crimes that they were going to commit, that the, that should not be allowed to be consumed or used as evidence because um, or, or it should be uh confidential um for national security purposes and 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 he said that this was covered under executive privilege and again as i mentioned the court ruled unanimously against him oh i actually i should correct myself it what rehnquist uh uh actually recused himself sorry correcting myself rehnquist did not uh rule in that instance but he was still on the court and you know Clarence, <laughs> it was Rehnquist recused himself because he had ties to the Nixon administration. So it actually is quite fascinating because Clarence Thomas's wife is deeply aligned with the Trump administration and the MAGA movement. And that has been delineated many times. You think Clarence Thomas is going to recuse himself? You think Clarence Thomas is going to recuse himself from this case? I think not. So um, this is a bad this is quite bad news, <laughs> um, but it's not news that anyone should be surprised by the supreme court is immensely important and um it's paying dividends for trump and the republicans that they were so aggressive so um laser focused on the judiciary and we are facing the effects of that and will be facing the effects of that for decades and decades to come all right, we are going to uh, be speaking to Carlos Rojas Rodriguez very shortly about immigration. But first, we have a word from one of our wonderful sponsors. Do you get into bed and start checking all of your social media apps and then all of a sudden 45 minutes have passed and you're just scrolling at nighttime and you look at the clock and freak out because... 
gosh, you got to go to bed. You got to get up for work in the morning, but you're so overstimulated from your phone. Look, I'm speaking from experience here. Calm, though, can help you form new and healthy bedtime habits this year. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com slash majority, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, and the content is added every week. Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation, giving you the power to calm your mind and change your life. Calm recognizes that everyone faces unique challenges in their daily lives, that mental health needs differ from person to person, and that time for meditation may vary. And since self-practices are so deeply personal, Calm strives to provide content that caters to your preferences and needs. Their meditations range from focuses on anxiety and stress, relaxation, and focus to building habits and taking care of your physical well-being. They have sleep stories with hundreds of titles to choose from, including sleep meditations and calming music that will have you drifting off to dreamland quickly and naturally. They even have expert-led talks on topics such as tips for overcoming stress and anxiety, handling grief, uh, improving self-esteem, caring for relationships, and more. Stress less, sleep more, and live better with calm. I have struggled to, like, actually try to have discipline with meditation. Calm has helped me immensely. Um, You know, my my fiancé is just, like, actually good at this stuff, and he was trying to teach me, and I'm like, I can't do this. You know, I need something else. I need... Uh, an app that's going to keep me on track with this and calm with all of their options really does help me out and it makes my mind kind of just slow down and stop racing ahead um so i couldn't recommend it more highly for lis- listeners of the show calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40 percent off a calm premium subscription at calm.com slash majority go to calm.com slash majority for 40 percent off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash majority, C-A-L-M dot com slash majority for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. Thank you, Calm, for sponsoring this program. And we're going to take a quick break and speak with uh, Carlos Rojas Rodriguez in a second. back and we are joined now by carlos rojas rodriguez longtime immigrant justice organizer and former staffer for the bernie sanders 2020 campaign carlos thanks so much for coming on the program thanks for having me 
So uh, recently, the Democrats and the Biden administration backed an extremely right-wing border deal that included Ukraine and Israel aid. It was an effort to get aid to Ukraine. That's what the Democrats, I guess, specifically in the Senate, like the the those on the you know Senate Armed Services Committee and those who are m- more connected to, um, I, I I you know the the the. There are many Democratic senators, I would say, that think that the fight, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is existential and sending money to Ukraine is really important. Um, And I support sending money to Ukraine um, with conditions. But the Israel stuff to fund the genocide, that was also a part of it. And so, of course, there's a lot of controversy on that end. And then the Republicans in in the House are not in favor of Ukraine money um because they're now pro putinish and so to get it over the hump the biden administration and democrats decided we're gonna go so far to the right on immigration and give the republicans everything they want now thankfully the republicans in the house just decided well we're we're, we're killing this because of ukraine aid and and the democrats were saved here in my opinion from republican extremism but that's a brief brief recap of how we got to this point I mean, what was your reaction when you saw all of that uh, hawkish border language in the bill? And if you could explain to our audience what it looks like and what it really means. Yeah, so we started hearing these rumors, I would say, back in October, November. Um, And, you know, we just couldn't believe what was being presented to us. Uh, The traditional compromise on immigration, I would say, since like the late Bush years, all of the Obama years, you know, and right before Trump got got in office, uh, was a agreement between border security for citizenship for millions of undocumented immigrants in the United States. Um, And I, you know, had reservations about that deal because I don't think that we need to militarize the border. Um, And there's a clear incentive for uh, immigrants to arrive to this country. Um, but, you know, at least us who work in the immigrant rights spaces, we had something to fight for. Um, and to go from, from there, you know, to this new agreement, which is uh, basically a wish list of uh, Trump on immigration, uh, including uh, hiring more ICE and CBP agents, militarizing the border, uh, you know, uh, encouraging governors like Abbott, uh continuing to create their own uh, uh, CBP and, and ICE agencies uh, at the state level uh, for uh, funding for uh, pointless wars, occupations, and genocide, right? Um, and this really sent a message to us uh, in the immigrant rights space uh, that we're really bargaining chips uh, in the eyes of the Democratic Party, right? I feel like we expect this kind of uh, treatment uh, from uh, the Republicans who have embraced a extreme uh, anti-immigrant na- narrative. But to see the Biden administration concede into that narrative and spearhead these negotiations uh, and sending a clear message to uh, the Democrats in Congress that this is a request from the White House uh, has definitely set us uh, years if not decades back when it comes uh, to the immigration struggle and the fight for immigrant rights so can you you mentioned it there if you could touch on what 
what the shift in mindset for the Democrats has been since the Obama administration. As you say, the DREAM Act did not succeed in Congress under Obama, but there still was this messaging and this desire to protect dreamers. And he did do some individual executive actions to protect dreamers. Um, This is this was just 10, 12 years ago at this point. But there is no effort from the Biden administration to approach this topic from that angle. How have things devolved to this point? Well, you know, um, I would even say that they've devolved uh, to the point that we can't even recognize uh, the president's actions uh, and rhetoric on policies, right? So uh, during the campaign trail uh, in, in 2020, uh, back then, candidate Biden was repeatedly questioned by activists and also uh, at debate stages by other uh, can- candidates about the three million deportations that took place uh, under the Obama administration. Right. Uh, three million people that have been deported that uh, the Obama administration promised to legalize and never happened. Right. Uh, and and even with those actions, at least back then, we had helpful narratives helpful rhetoric, uh, the embracement of the DACA program, a commitment for a pathway to citizenship. And even though uh, there wasn't a clear path in Congress to do it, uh, we could at least rely on a president that would say uh, that would have a helpful rhetoric to advance uh, the cause for immigrant rights. Now, during the campaign trail in 2020, Biden actually apologized and said that the efforts to deport 3 million people were misguided. Uh, he made promises to end private detention, right? Uh, this, uh, this is the, the existence of uh, private corporations that function like hotels. They create contracts with ICE, uh, and they basically make money by uh, detaining undocumented immigrants, thus creating an incentive for anti-immigrant legislation at the state and local level to keep those beds full. So Biden promised to end private detention. He also promised to uh, end co- cooperation between police and ICE uh, and ending programs like the 27G uh, agreements, which uh, forces uh, local police departments to act as ICE agents at the local level, which creates distrust between you know, uh, the immigrant community and law enforcement. Now, um, we expected, right, that uh, come 2020, uh, 2021, we would see a president take executive action to end 287G programs, which he can do by executive uh, authority. Uh, We expected an announcement that would uh, prohibit uh, private detention centers uh, from existing. Uh, And we have seen the complete opposite. We have seen efforts to expand uh, Trump-era policies that he criticized, like Title 42. Uh, We have seen horrific images, right, of Haitian Black immigrants being whooped on horseback at the border. Uh, We have seen Vice President Kamala Harris, during her visit to Central uh, America, tell people not to come, not to come to the United States without offering any solutions for these countries that have been uh, victims you know, uh, of U.S. foreign economic policies and also military policies for the last 50 years. So to arrive today, 2024, 
right? Uh, and hearing that President Biden is making a visit to the border today, hearing rumors that they might be uh, announcements of policies through executive action uh, that just cave uh, to this anti-immigrant rhetoric that uh, right-wing extremists in the Republican Party have created is really disheartening. Uh, it is a disappointment, and we see it as a betrayal uh, to uh, the promises that he made during the campaign trail. You uh, were, and I did not realize this, Carlos, because uh, I remember this video quite clearly. You were one of the folks in the audience that asked Biden a question about his immigration policy, and he was the per- he was uh, that was the response when he said you should just vote for Trump. I remember that quite clearly in my mind, because at the time, you know, the com- the primary was still competitive and it was just such a shocking answer to give um, to somebody who was just speaking about uh, the, the condition of, of immigrants in this country. Um, I mean, what was what was that like asking him that question? And does it surprise you that he's decided to go down this road. Yeah, we were at a town hall in South Carolina. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we have brought uh, parents who have had family members either detained or deported, right? Uh, and when Biden uh, was running for president, there was a clear question in our heads. So under the Obama administration, while he sat as vice president, the second most powerful person in the country, right? Uh, he uh, saw the Obama ad- administration deport 3 million people. Now, we had parents engaged uh, with Biden at a town hall, uh, really asking whether we can trust him uh, to be the president, knowing that when he was vice president, 3 million deportations took place. Now, um, he went on just sharing some basic talking points about Dreamers and DACA, uh, but we had older people in the room. We had undocumented parents who don't qualify for DACA, who have been waiting for a pathway to citizenship for years, if not decades. And the only question that we had for him was whether uh, he would promise to stop the mass deportation crisis. Now, um, I think he got very defensive. Um, and I think that this is a rhetoric that we have seen from Democrats uh, when it comes to many progressive issues, right? That if we that that if you don't like the status quo and what we have to offer, then you can go ahead and support the you know the worst of the two evils, right? So you can go ahead and support Trump, uh, and I think that that's what he was trying to say. Well, if you don't like what I have to offer, you know, then you can go ahead and vote for Trump, knowing that his policies would probably be worse than what we have. Now, fast forward to 2023, you know, if I just moved to the United States and I just experienced immigration policy for what it is, I really can't tell you the difference between the Biden administration and the Trump uh, administration because uh, Biden has actively expanded anti-immigrant uh, policies uh, from, from the Trump era that he promised to to eradicate. You know, um, we, we are seeing an immigration crisis uh, that is really affecting the nation. Uh, and, and we're seeing uh, re- Republicans use the anti-immigrant re- rhetoric to really energize their base. But we don't see a counterweight on the Democratic side. Uh, we just see a concession and further 
pushing to the right on on immigration during an election year. And it is 2024. Uh, I'm really concerned about, you know, Biden's chances for re-election. Not saying that he should be the president that we have, but when we think about Trump and Biden, uh, clearly when Trump was in office, the immigrant community was terrified. You know, uh, it was even hard to organize and mobilize people because we really thought that we were going to be rounded up by ICE, you know, um, and uh, the message that I have for uh, Democrats, right, is that um, when uh, Obama, uh, under the pressure of undocumented youth, issued the DACA program on the summer of 2012, the summer before uh, the, the, his, his presidential re- re-election, uh, it made sense for immigrant rights organizations and the movement to transition from a campaign and policy and trying to really pass things to electoral cycle, right? Because uh, we felt that we had at least won some protections for undocumented youth. Now, this year, there is no motivation. There is no incentive. I am in community meetings with directly impacted people that have campaigned for Democrats for years, you know, uh, and they're really asking, like, what are we really fighting for? Uh, it just feels like we're fighting against something, but there's nothing to fight for. Uh, and like the latest ne- ne- negotiations that we have seen, uh, mixing border security with foreign aid for genocide occupation and pointless wars, uh, really make it clear that we don't have a path forward on a- immigration. And just like many other co- constituencies, uh, my fear is that, you know, young people, immigrants, uh, who have family members who are citizens, who have kids that have been born here, don't really have a motivation to go to the polls in November. Um, I, I know that you don't have too much time, so I wanted to ask you this um, uh, before we, we, we have to say goodbye to you. Um, what is the alternative vision for the Democrats? What could they do to differentiate their messaging? We've seen when they try to be Republican light, they just embolden Republican messaging. I mean, what's really needed is a standardized, modernized process to bring people through so they can go through the system in a humane way and have their asylum claims heard. Militarism only, only creates more death and insecurity for migrants that will cross anyway, but they'll be beholden to cartels, they'll be in danger for their lives. I mean, what does militarism look like and what should the alternative path be for the Democrats? Border militarism, I I mean to say. Um, I would say that uh, first, the path that they should stop taking is embracing this anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, and policies, right? Um, When you present Biden and Trump to the general population, I would say that mostly every voter would assume that Trump would be tougher on immigration. So Biden trying to court voters, right, uh, or putting, you know, this uh, supplemental bills uh, to militarize the border, uh, I don't really think politically creates any base of voters that would say, you know what, if my issue is border security, then I think that Biden would be better than Trump on border security, Right. Trump is the person who created this narrative. So uh, you really can't make a political case for Biden to uh, out-Trump Trump Trump on his own policies, right? Um, Now, 
I think that we are at a point in place, um, you know, um, and just to mention Michigan, for example, a couple of days ago, where there is an all-time high discouragement of the democratic base or the traditional democratic base to actually be energized to go to the polls in November. We need to offer a counter vision to what the Trump administration uh, did during uh, their years in office. And this, as you ha have highlighted, uh, means that we really look to reduce the backlog that we have on immigration. We need judges being able to make determination on this case. We need policies that allow people to uh, come forward, uh, you know, uh, make uh, a claim uh, to be in this country and have the right, you know, to, uh, to a process uh, where they're treated fairly. And we also need compassion. And we just need to remember that we all come from somewhere, you know, um, that these visa quotas that we have today were a racist effort to just really limit um, the people that we that 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 were coming from. You know, when 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 folks were coming from Europe, we we like we basically had an open border policy, right? Where you just get a medical screening and that's all you you need to do. But when people started coming from the global south, then all of a sudden we saw a need to restrict in immigration. You know, um, and also uh, people, you know. I migrated myself. I'm an undocumented, uh, you know, I used to be an undocumented immigrant for 12 years in, in, in this country. I remember my parents going through, um, through the decision making process, you know, and it took us years to really land on the decision that we wanted to leave our loved ones, our community, our language. My mom was a teacher and she loved her profession. She knew that she would have to trade her a dream job for probably a factory job, which she worked for nearly 20 years, you know, um, and she did it because she saw no way, no path forward for, for us in Peru, you know. Uh, so what I would say is that countries in the global south need support. They need financial help, you know, uh, and instead of expending billions of dollars on foreign wars, you know, uh, occupations and genocide, we can actually support countries get back on their feet so that next time that, that Kamala Harris goes to Central America, she doesn't just tell people not to go home, but actually offers so solutions in the form of infrastructure programs and fi financial help for people that are fleeing uh, north. You know, uh, uh, immigrants are forced to make these decisions. You know, uh, if if we had a better quality of life, in our home countries, we wouldn't be here in the first place. And just to remind viewers, you know, uh, some of these policies uh, that are for some of the conditions that are forcing people to migrate uh, were, uh, you know, initiated by the CIA, by the School yep. of the Americas, by Occupy, you know, by uh, like supporting military dictatorships, you know, uh, and really also, like, we don't talk about free trade uh, a lot. You know, all of these programs like NAFTA, CAFTA, you know, that basically create open borders for U.S. corporations to set shop anywhere uh, in South America, Central America, and Mexico have displaced business owners and farm workers because they have no way to compete with the infrastructure uh, that, that, that these corporations have. So, you know, a lot of times people tell me, 
do you support open borders? You know, and I feel like that's a really unfair question when literally companies have open borders because we have created policies that allow them to go anywhere they want on earth. We have, in the name of globalization, uh, put uh, poor people and working class people in conditions where they're forced to migrate. So I would just re remind people that everyone who is coming here with their children, cro crossing Rio Grande, right, uh, making this journey, sometimes 2,000, 3,000 miles, uh, I would really just ask them, receive them, you know, welcome them with love and compassion because they are forced to be here. They really don't want to be here, you know? Um, yeah. Until I really became Americanized, you know, I didn't really want uh, to live in this country because I really felt the racism uh, as well, you know? Um, so that's my message. I really appreciate it. And yeah, that's such a great point about globalization. Globalization for capital, but not for human beings. Um, thank you so much, uh, Carlos Rojas Rodriguez, uh, immigrant rights uh, organizer, former staffer for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be speaking to congressional candidate in Illinois, Kena Collins. <laughs> are back and we are joined now by Kena Collins, candidate for Congress in the 7th Congressional District, longtime activist in uh, Illinois, in Chicago. Kena, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be back. It, it's good to talk to you. Um, we we were, were chatting about this briefly uh, because our, our previous interview has a lot of resonance right now for Chicago because Greg Abbott is posturing per usual, saying that migrants should be sent to Chicago so uh, they can deal with them in the same way he was doing that for um, New York and Ron DeSantis for Martha's Vineyard, just treating 
human beings as as pawns in this way. Um, as somebody who's been involved in you know Chicago activism and community organizing for so long, uh, what's your reaction to some of that rhetoric and what you're seeing in the city? You know, I couldn't agree more that the talking point about uh, we don't have a problem with open borders for companies that go into countries and exploit a workforce to build global economies, um, obviously of some of the strongest global economies that we know. And I think what's happening in Chicago um, is no different uh, with that talking point. What I've been really proud about is how the community has stepped up with mutual aid efforts and you know, uh, what Greg Abbott meant for bad, the people of Chicago mean for good. And I think that we've had this moment where we've had to contend with communities that haven't had the resources like the African-American community, for example, who feels that, you know, we don't have enough resources to give everybody. And what activists and organizers on the ground, you know, have been activating community members with is that we we can't move with a scarcity mindset. We have to center the voices of those who've been left behind, um, like the African-American community, and talk about their agenda and the things that they need. And we also have to say it's not okay for people to be sleeping on the floors in police stations, um, migrants and new arrivals and new Chicagoans, right? So um, it's been interesting to watch, but I've been very proud of community really stepping up um, and with open arms and welcoming new arrivals in Chicago. Well, the, you're, uh, to, to get a little bit into your background in Chicago, you are running for, for Congress. It's the 7th Congressional District in Illinois. Um, you're up against a very, very, very long-term incumbent. I mean, he's been, how long has he been in Congress, Congressman Davis? A, a quarter of a century, over a quarter of a century. Oh, wow. Okay. And, yeah, and you he's have, been my, he's been my representative since I was five years old. You've challenged him before as well, right? And, and your first try, there was a big gap, but you closed it a lot in your second try. And now third time's the charm, hopefully here. Um, talk about why, <laughs> knock on wood, I just did it. Uh, <laughs> talk a little bit about why you decided to go for this for a third time. You know, um, we built the largest field apparatus that this district had seen in a generation. We out-fundraised the incumbent two to one, didn't take a dime of corporate PAC money. And anybody who knows anything about politics, you don't even have to live in Chicago. You know that the Chicago machine is unmatched. And so Congressman Davis called in all of the Democratic leadership from our governor to the mayor Hakeem Jeffries came and stumped in the district. Nancy Pelosi came to stump in the district. And then in the 11th hour, as those final polling numbers were coming in, uh, Joe Biden actually endorsed in our district, which he only, President Biden only endorsed in three Democratic primaries, and we were one of them last midterm. And so I think what we really showed was our organizing prowess. We showed that we were right. And to take on a stalwart like Danny Davis, who has accepted so much corporate PAC money um, and say that it's time for a new breed of leadership to step up in Chicago in the Illinois 7th and then to lose by one city war and let the people in the city of Chicago and in the western suburbs know that uh, we could do this. And so um, we're back to finish what we start because we don't believe in abandoning the movements that we build. What is his record? I mean, what does he stand for? I know that recently he's been one of the most absent members of Congress in terms of votes. Uh, what is his 
what are his policies and how do yours differ? Well, you know, what's interesting is Congressman Davis actually came in as extremely progressive. Uh, he was a lot like our campaign 40 somewhat years ago. Right. And I think that's the issue that we have both in the Democratic Party and just in the political system is that people get into these seats and then they get complacent. And so aside from him missing being one of the Democrats in our delegation to miss some of the most votes of any body in the delegation, um, Congressman Davis has been absent on the uh, Israel Gaza situation, right? Um, the merciless bombings that have been happening against innocent Gazan people. Um, he hasn't really stood with the community on that. He continues to take corporate PAC donations. As a matter of fact, he has accepted campaign donations from the GEO Group, which is the second largest private prison contractor in the globe, right? In a plurality African-American district with a median age of 35, we are a prime targeted district for those private prison mass carceral systems to profit off of and throw into jail. And so we need somebody who's going to speak with a moral authority. I also like to talk about how Illinois 7 has the largest life expectancy gap in the nation. Between downtown Chicago, you live to the age of about 90. If you travel a 30-minute car ride to the south side of Chicago, which is also in our district, you live to the age of 60. So it's a 30-year life gap based off of a 30-minute car ride, and we want a congressperson that's not going to accept corporate PAC dollars from pharmaceutical industry and, and big insurance companies. Um, that all uh, is definitely in keeping with pr progressive values, um, for sure. And also, your your background, I think, is really notable. I think uh, you know I mentioned it earlier that you have a long history of activism. The fact that you began to organizing in response to uh, police brutality, Laquan McDonald in particular, what was your journey like in activism? Um, and how did it get you to the point where you wanted to make change as a congresswoman? You know, I think this is just like a full circle moment. The district that I'm running in and the neighborhood that I live in is the same neighborhood that Chairman Fred Hampton used to organize in and was ultimately assassinated in, right? So when we talk about a class struggle, when we talk about building rainbow coalitions, and when we talk about holding accountability for major entities and institutions like the Chicago Police Department, um, this is in my blood. This is in my DNA. And so I think, you know, the journey has been one where um, it's been an eye-opening experience. I think when you're an organizer in the city of Chicago, you get a world-class crash course and taking on some of the most corrupt politicians and some of the most corrupt policies. And so when we get to Washington, D.C., you know, the style of governing that I will be implementing is a co-governing style. And I think that comes from that organizing background that I'm coming as one, but I stand as 10,000, right? My community is coming with me. My community is standing as an accountability metric for us. And so when we talk about not taking corporate PAC dollars in our campaign, when we talk about grassroots organizing, when we talk about taking on stalwarts like Danny Davis, all of that comes from that accountability metric and that organizing experience that I got firsthand on the front lines of those protests and in public policy rooms. 
you what is uh what are some of the other areas of uh passion for you as a candidate i i the for example public schools gun violence i know that has been part of what you've advocated for in the past how would that translate and how does that i guess translate to your platform as a candidate yeah you know public safety is often the number one issue on polls for a lot of voters. And, you know, gun violence prevention is my number one issue. As a child, I actually witnessed another young person gunned down in my community and I knew the victim and I knew the shooter and it changed the entire trajectory of my life. And um, what I also knew was that the bullet was flying long before anybody pulled the trigger, right? When we shut down public schools, when we gut wraparound services and mental health um, in communities, when we don't build strong local economies for people all of that is structural violence and it's the bullet flying. And so I've went from being a survivor of gun violence, a public policy expert, on to even being tapped um, by the Biden administration to advise their senior policy advisors on common sense gun safety legislation. And so all of it has really been tied in telling that story to voters that over-policing our communities are not going to be the ways that we keep each other safe. We keep each other safe, right? And so we have to strike at the root causes of what causes that. And violence, at least in our district and really all across this country, the root cause is poverty. And you're not going to be able to police poverty away. And so having that voice as a survivor, as a public policy expert, I think has really captivated um, voters in the district and brought them our way. Uh, the final thing I'll say is I'm really, really passionate about universal health care, specifically single payer Medicare for all. Um, before running for office, I worked for Physicians for a National Health Program, where I turned actual doctors into activists fighting for a single payer Medicare um, for all health care system in the country. And that's going to be one of my top issues and priorities when I get to Congress. And and. Can you uh, also differentiate yourself because in in the you're not the only candidate running in this race um, in the primary, but clearly you are the one who's gotten the closest to toppling the incumbent. So, I mean, what is the status of your race with some of the other candidates running in the primary? You know, I think it's all eyes on us on election night. And this is a time for the progressives to shine. This is why it's important to come on shows like this one and tell progressives across the country to get on board and help us in these last few weeks leading into the election cycle. We lost our race by 4,600 votes. That is a field margin. Wow. Wow. That means that a, a handful of precincts was the difference between um, us electing somebody who has been there for over two decades, going on three decades, and somebody who is hungry and ready to really fight for the people and who's been on the front lines in these last, you know, in this last decade of this progressive fight. And so I think the Chicago media, we really made people respect the progressive movement in this district. We really made people respect underdog candidates um, in this race. And this is going to be the most competitive primary in Illinois on election night. And so, um, you know, I'm just calling on if you believe in these same values, help us in these last few weeks get to get across the finish line. Uh, has Brandon Johnson, mayor of Chicago, uh, weighed in on this race? And, and what's your relationship with him? Because that was a fairly 
exciting pr- victory for uh, folks who were invested in, you know, like I'm, I'm in Brooklyn right now and our mayor is a right wing cop. So Brandon Johnson looks like uh, a, a, just a, a much better option. Um, what, what has his reaction been to your race and has he weighed in? So um, the mayor has not officially weighed into the race. Um, Brandon was my commissioner before um, he became the mayor. So me and Brandon have a really good relationship. We were close before um, he became mayor. Um, You know, the mayor is, he's working on a lot of things. And so um, in the city of Chicago, and it's been a steep learning curve for him. Um, And, you know, he's getting his footing and he's had some great progressive victories under his belt and the short period that he's been in, but there's also a lot of things that he's working on that I think has taken his attention. I don't know if the mayor will weigh in on this race, um, but what I will say is um, we, we're not just leaning on endorsements to win this election. When, when we ran last time and almost won this seat, we probably had two, maybe three elected officials that endorsed us, right? We came into this election cycle with over 20 elected officials across the district who have endorsed this campaign, over 15 community organizations, right? So we have we have united the progressive space in this district and they're behind and united behind our campaign. And uh, that's what we're looking forward to. The only endorsement I'm looking forward to is the voters in this district. <laughs> I got you. Um, <laughs> I'm wrapping up here, but have you... How many times have people compared your campaign to Cori Bush's in the sense that both community organizers, both like of you are activists that came out of kind of police brutality opposition. Also, Cori Bush ran against the incumbent, lost before and then came around and ended up winning. Uh, Do you see inspiration in her campaign? I love Representative Bush. And uh, she's really been such a source of wisdom for me. I I personally, obviously, I was endorsed by the Justice Democrats and the previous election cycle. So obviously, Corey is a part of that political family. And um, the Sunday after I lost, Corey gave me a call in the true fashion of a pastor. Right. She's a minister. So uh, she gave me a call. And I, I, you know, I basically told Corey, like, I don't think, you know, I could do this again. And Corey, you know, just gave me words of encouragement and told me her story about how she had to run three times, you know, before she got into Congress and to really just keep my head up. And so I've been really um, encouraged by Corey Bush. I've been seeing how she's been standing strong for the Palestinian people against all adversity. And I think that that strong moral compass is um, something that not even candidates and electeds, but just like organizers and people in the community should be very proud of. So I'm looking forward to joining Corey and uh, and Congress (laughs) and everybody has compared us to Corey Bush. Okay, good. Uh, I'm not breaking uh, new ground here, but I mean, it's good. It's good for me to hear that she called you and was such a source of support because we've been so impressed by her and, and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar speaking and, and put sticking their necks out, particularly on this straightforward moral issue of stopping the massacre in Gaza. Um, now, uh, when is your primary? Uh, uh, when is your primary and uh, when uh, how can people help out your campaign? Um, so the primary is March 19th. 
We are doing canvases every single day. And if you don't live in the state or close by in the region, uh, you can phone bank and text bank remotely. You could go to KenaCollins.com and sign up on our volunteer page. And please, like I said, we are a grassroots uh, people-powered campaign. And so any last-minute donations would be extremely helpful. Uh, so please go to KenaCollins.com, hit the volunteer button, hit the donate button, and, and help us get across the finish line. Kena Collins, I'll be rooting for you uh, from afar, and uh, we will put the link to your website and all of those uh, links that you mentioned in the description of our podcast and at Majority.fm, uh, th- and, and also YouTube description. Thanks so much, uh, Kena. I really appreciate your time today, and good luck. Thank you. All right. Um, quick break, guys, and uh, are we going to be speaking at, to... Um, all right, so... All right, we're going to probably go into the fun half. We're we're trying to get into in contact um with Sam has mentioned this a few times on the program uh a fundraiser uh, for a family in Gaza. We were uh we're potentially going to be speaking uh to a member of this family, Muhammad Aldagma, and we'll put this up here on the screen. Bradley's getting it together. Um, but his family is stuck in Gaza. He is in Belgium at this point. Um, he's been supporting his family and he is deeply concerned about his niece, uh, Afaf. She has Down syndrome and they desperately need supplies. They're living down in the south of Gaza, um, near the Egyptian border and they are one of the many families um, just living day to day trying to survive this genocide. And um, it, it, I know people, I think, are uh, struggling to, to wonder, how, you know, how can I how can we help? How, how can I make a difference right now? Because my government seemingly refuses to do so. And this is one way that you can. We will put a link to this down below wherever you're listening to or watching this. Um, they have a, a, a 60,000 euro goal and they're a little over halfway there at this point. So if you have the ability, please um, take the time to look at this fundraiser on GoFundMe and try to help um, this family in Gaza. We will be speaking more about Gaza, and I want to do a very deep dive into the wonderful work by The Intercept, per usual. Ryan Grimm, um, Jeremy Scahill, and I think Daniel Boguslaw, yeah, co-authored a piece very extensively debunking, maybe not debunking, but showing how deeply um, negligent and propagandistic this uh piece was that you know on october 7th and the mass rape that was um alleged in this explosive front page new york times piece you know at the time i saw that and i I said i i don't have many doubts that sexual violence occurs occurred um it was a brutal attack on october 7th and that would not be out of the norm but i was perplexed by the lack of real first-person accounts in this piece i'm not going to cast aspersions on 
somebody making claims that they were assaulted until I get evidence really to the contrary, but it did seem suspect. And the evidence to the contrary about this piece of journalism, I say in quotes in the New York Times, is overwhelming at this point. So great job by, uh, uh, you know, at the very least, the reporting is quite shoddy at the um, and we'll go into the details of that uh, in the fun half. Um, Bradley, do you know what's happening on Left Reckoning? Bradley's going to uh, pull that up. But in the meantime, you can go to ESVN and you can see Bradley and I ripping into Doc Rivers, which is a favorite pastime of mine. Um, and his consistent throwing of his players under the bus and excuse making. We also spoke about the uh, NCAA football game and EA Sports ripping off college players with a very uh, measly sum to pay for their likeness. Um, and we th- then did a little bit of a uh, a draft, ranking the best Super Bowls in the 21st century, youtube.com slash ESVN show. And Matt is not here with us, so Bradley will pull up Left Reckoning and tell us. Yeah, so it's, uh, Matt and David uh, before uh, their, uh, before Matt left for the, the wedding, that uh, for David Griscom's wedding, actually. Uh, oh, I didn't know if we were supposed to reveal uh, such a thing. Oh, uh, well, Matt, Matt said it. Yes, oh, okay, yeah, good. Well, it. anyway, congratulations to David. I didn't know if I wanted to, if that was like a secret, so there we no, go. No, no, I think it's, I think it's okay. Uh, uh, we, they spoke to Alex Hockley of the Bunga cast to discuss his review of three different books on the failures of the past decade of the left populism um, in the American Affairs Journal. Uh, so youtube.com slash left reckoning for that, as well as patreon.com slash left reckoning to access the post game. And also everybody. What? Oh, don't forget don't to get do, out the void. Do not forget to get out the void. I actually just purchased my own get out the void t-shirt. Why yesterday. did you buy it? Because I want to support the I want to support the show. Your employer? I want to support my employer. I'm, I want one for free, I'm, Sam. I'm a huge I'm a huge company man. I actually really desperately want Get Out the Void because of how stupid it is. Because of how incredibly stupid it is. How it was a throwaway inside joke that I just like. We'll say that on occasion. We'll say we want to um, make a T-shirt out of that, and then we'll just forget. But the fact that Sam immediately went. And got these made without really any other further further discussion was just shocking to me because it's just that random and just that funny. I desperately need to get out the void shirt, but also on the on the on shop.majorityreportradio.com, you can get the Majority Report Days of the Week T-shirt, which has Hump Day, Newsday, Tuesday, and Majority Report. Um, you can get a Whoopsie T-shirt. Lots of fun stuff. Go to shop.majorityreportradio.com. Our merch is very fun, and you can support us in the process. Um, yeah, so the sale, it's $25 for the uh, Get Out the Void t-shirt. The sale ends March 13th, and they will be uh, delivered. They will be uh, shipped out after the sale is over. Thank you very much, Bradley. Um, we have, Matt, we don't have Brandon yet, but let's just head into the fun half since we're a little shorthanded and Matt can tell us what's happening on Doomed and Scam Economy. The number is 646-257-3920. See you in the fun half. You are in for it. All right, folks. 646-257-3920. See you in the fun half. Are you ready? Sent us this. Alpha males are back.
back, back, boy is back, and the alpha males are back, back, just as delicious as you could imagine. The alpha males are back, 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 boy is back, and the alpha males are back, 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 back. Just wanna degrade the white man. Alpha males are back, back. I take all of it to my throat. Alpha males are back, 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 back. Snowflakes has what? The alpha males are back, 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 back. You are a madman. And the alpha males are back, back. Oh no, Sam Cedar! What a wow! What a fucking nightmare! Nightmare! Yeah, or a couple of them. Just put them in rotation. DJ Dinner. Well, the problem with those is they're like forty-five seconds long, so I don't know if they're enough for the break. That's fucking nonsense. See white people doing drugs that look worse than normal white people, and all white people look disgusting. And the alpha males are psych. Fuck them. Fuck them. Snowflake says what? 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 Have you tried doing an impression on a college campus? I, I think that there's no reason why reasonable people across the divide can't all agree with this. Psych. And the alpha males are back. And the Africans are black, 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 black African. And the alpha males are black, 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 black. And the Africans are black, 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 black. When you see Donald Trump out there, doesn't a little part of you think that America deserves to be taken over by jihadists? Keep it at 100. Can't knock the hustle. Come on. Fuck them. Fuck them. Things I do for the bigger game plan. By the way, it's my birthday. My birthday. Happy birthday to me, Jew boy. I have a thought experiment for you. And the alpha males are black, black. Africans are black, black. Alpha males are black, black. Africans are black, black. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Someone needs to pay the price of blasphemy around here. I, 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 I am in
are back and we are joined by Matt Binder. Hello, Matt Binder. Hello. How are you doing, Emma? I am doing well. I am doing quite well. Uh, Brandon had uh, something come up, so I don't know if we're going to have Brandon. So it's just you, myself, and Bradley today. Look at that. Ah, All right. And Matt Leck is MIA, too. Exactly. He's uh, on his way to Griscom's wedding. So David Ah, Griscom's wedding. Congrats. Congratulations, David Griscom. Yeah. Yes. Um, So we are going to uh hopefully hear um from our guests in a second to speak about this fundraiser um muhammad should uh maybe be with us by by phone but for now uh bender what's happening on doomed and scam economy oh well basically uh this week i went on another show and uh, multi-streamed to my uh my channel in lieu of it was the same time frame as uh doomed usually streams so just did that instead it's uh Left Past Ten, a panel show that includes um, Matt from The Letter Hack, of, of the letter, a.k.a. The Letter Hack, I should say. So uh, definitely check that out. It's on my channel at youtube.com slash Matt Binder. We talked about uh, everything that happened this week. Uh, a lot happened this week, as, as you know. Yeah, it's a busy week. Busy, busy week. Um, and then, of course, right. tonight, Leftist Mafia at uh, youtube.com slash Matt Binder as well. Join me. Uh, Matt, uh, 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 well, I am Matt. Me, the Humanist Report, Rational <laughs> National, uh, Lance the Serfs, uh, and Rebecca, uh, who you, some of you might know from, uh, you know, Ben Dixon's uh, show. Uh, check that out at youtube.com slash Matt Binder at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right. All right. Um, do we have him by any chance? Okay. All right. We're, we're, uh, we're still we're still trying to reach um, Muhammad, so I'll read some IMs for a sec. Charlie Sheher says, "I literally got into an argument at work listening to my coworkers bitch about how Biden's giving immigrants houses and free money. And when I tried to point out that Biden tried to give the Republicans everything they wanted on immigration, they angrily shut me down. I'm so pissed off the Dems right now. Yeah." A void of no confidence as the other lack of daylight between Joe Biden and Republican border policy is abhorrent. It's absurd. Dave from Jamaica, I was looking at old speeches of H. Bush and Reagan. Dems are now to the right of them on immigration. Yep. Um, Noah from Tampa. Brandon Johnson is on the spectrum of a mayor of a big city is very good. On the spectrum of a mayor in a big city is very good. But in the limited time I've been in Chicago, he's done some good things. He's done some things that raise an eyebrow. The first of which was ending the city contract with shot spotter then on the day uh then on the day the contract was set to expire he renewed it for another five years the second thing is he's trying to use city funds to develop the new white Sox stadium in west loop west downtown and it was originally just going to be pr- a private venture and now the i know pritzker outlefted brandon johnson on that pritzker came out in, in opposition to that and now the thing is uh and now this thing about not endorsing the progressive who grew up in uh, his administrative neighborhood, not a good look. I hear you on that. I hear you on that. Um, do you, I am Hamas, says, is MR crew at all concerned about the Days of the Week shirt being a schedule of Hamas members? <laughs> yeah, I know. We're looking into that. It's... Um, it's a uh, concerning they, it's, I'm seeing now it's on CNN and they are and and they're reporting that it's uh, 
a Hamas terror list. All right. We actually have our guest really briefly um, joining us on the phone lines here. Uh, Mohammed uh, Aldogma. I'm sorry if I, I mispronounce your name. Um, are you there, Mohammed? Yes, yes. Hello. Hello. Everyone. You hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Um, how do you, how do I say your full name? Yeah, Muhammad Al Dagma. Same exactly like what you, did you say? Okay, good, good. Um, so we've been um, talking a bit about your family and have been um, linking to the GoFundMe for your family in Gaza. Uh, I know that you have an eight-year-old niece who has Down syndrome, and they are trapped in South Gaza right now. Can you give us a sense of how they're doing and, and what the situation is like for them? Yeah, I want to thank you for this support, for this calling, for inviting me to this meet. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate everyone who donate and support us. My family doing now, uh, they live in a tent in uh, Rafah city, close the, to the Egypt, Egyptian borders. And uh, I have all all members of my family now there, my father, my mother, and uh, my two brothers, two sisters with their kids. And, uh, you know, there is, like, uh, intent, and the situation is really bad, and they are scared. Like, the last time, the area where they lived, they get pumped from uh, airstruck, and uh, the tend to get some damage also from uh, this air truck. And they're suffering like from hunger, from uh, uh, everything actually, from scary, from this war. How are, are they trying to leave Gaza right now? I, yeah, yeah. That's the reason that I made uh, this uh, donation link to fundraiser to like get money to pay for them. If you want to leave Gaza, you have to pay for Egyptian borders. At least uh, there is some uh, office they ask uh, between five thousand to seven thousand euro dollars. Sorry, dollar American dollars to per person just to evacuate to Egypt. So and they don't have this money. A bribe to the Egyptians to get out of of uh, of Gaza. Basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that we've heard many reports of that. Um, and it, it seems to be the only way people are able to leave. But of course, many th- those who had the money already were able to 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 meet those demands. But many are not, um, including your family, which is why we're, we're uh, trying to support you. Um what is the the state of of healthcare for your niece who has Down syndrome? Um, how is she reacting to this ongoing genocide around her? Yeah, Afaf, she's my niece, uh, and she has uh, Down syndrome. Uh, actually, she she was before the war. She get like a lot of uh, medical problem with her teeth, with her uh, stomach. Uh, and uh, also, sorry for my bad, uh, my English, it's not really perfect. 
So I'm trying to write uh, the exact problem with here and translate to in English, and then I can say it in the right way. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that, Mohammed. Uh, it's okay if you're unable to to articulate it. I think we can understand. Um, I, I have some reporters for, from uh, my sister. Um, I can send it to you. Uh, yes. With the uh, with the WhatsApp, it's gonna be easy for me to, and you can understand more better because I don't know exactly. Yes. The, how to say it in English. Well, let's put up your GoFundMe on the screen here, and we can read how the funds will be used. Um, fifty four thousand migration fees, uh, the bribe, as we say, for Afaf and the family. Five thousand for yeah. food supplies; uh, they need food. A thousand yeah. for travel permits and transportation. That is what is needed to get your family out through the Egyptian border. Um, uh, can. Can you speak more about their, um, how urgent this yeah. is? Yes. Like, um, if I want to evacu evacuate all of them, they are um, like 10 person. Like, if I want to pay for everyone, like 5,000 per person to get out uh, from Gaza to Egypt, I have to pay 50,000 to this, like, uh, one office, it's named uh, Hala office in Egypt. And uh, and this one, uh, they take their adults like uh, five thousand, between five thousand to seven thousand. But if you want to pay five thousand, you have to wait this list. There is a list, and you have to wait until your your name is coming. But if you are like emergency, you want to pay seven thousand, you can get like get out fast than this list. And uh, if they leave Gaza, there is no option or any way to go. Just to Egypt, you know, and uh, I have to pay for them rent in any uh, any apartment in Egypt, and I have, I have to pay for them food every time. Like, then there is no one can uh, send them anything instead of me. We lost everything, our home, for the second time. Uh, so that uh, the money actually is going to paying for the uh, evacuate to Egypt. Now I get almost like 30,000. Uh, I'm trying to uh, evacuate my sister and with her kids and my mother. Uh, I, I have talked to someone who is working in this office and he promised me that uh, in, in the next week he will evacuate uh, only my sister with her kids and my mom. And, yeah. Well, um... Mohammed, we uh, at the we're we're putting this link everywhere, and we will be posting it to get you to that sixty thousand euro goal. Um, we are, you know, praying for you and your family, and um, I'm hoping that our audience can come together and we'll be able to help your family in this ex in extreme time of need. Um, thank you for calling in and, and sharing um, your story. Thank you. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I want to thank everyone who is boasting, who is sharing and donate for me and for my family. I really appreciate it. Thank you from my heart. Thank That's you so, so amazing much. From you. Thank, thank you, you. Mohammed. Thank you so much. Thank you. <sighs> I'm glad we were able to reach him.
Um, as I said, at the back half of the, uh, at the end of the first hour, you can find the links in the description, um, the link to this fundraiser in particular in the description of this podcast or um, of this YouTube uh, broadcast and that majority.fm will be put, posting all of that. Um, yeah, this is a situation so many families are, are, are facing right now, but if we can just help one family in this dire situation in the midst of this genocide you know i'd 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 like to so um yeah uh let's uh, bender i mean you are a reporter that covers misinformation right like you're you're pretty good at that i appreciate that thank you yes i I do cover uh misinformation you do um and right right and not just from the right honestly it's uh all over the place now. Um, apparently yeah. in the New York Times. Apparently right. in the New York Times. Right, so, yeah. So if you'll allow me, I would like to do a deep dive into this incredible piece written by friends of the show, many friends of the show, the team over there at The Intercept, Ryan Grimm, Murtaza, who's... Uh, no, it wasn't Murtaza, I apologize. It's not a friend of the show there, but not on this piece. Ryan Grimm, Jeremy Scahill, and Daniel uh, Bogoslaw had this bombshell report, honestly, um, where they did a deep dive into the cover story on October 7th uh, and the alleged mass rape that occurred on October 7th against Israelis by Hamas. Now, when I first read that initial report, you know, you there's some red flags about the lack of first person testimony um much of it being fairly vague but at the time you know you have to assume in a an attack like this that many kinds of violence uh are perpetrated and sexual violence is quite common in wartime you can obviously not rule out that hamas committed sexual violence on october 7th you can't rule it out after this explosive report by The Intercept going into what The New York Times um, was alleging. You can't rule it out either. But this, at the very least, casts, casts immense doubt on the claims that were made in this piece that wasn't just a one-off. It was on the front page of The Times, and it was published at the time when public opposition to Israel's assault on Gaza was mounting and it had clearly a strategic purpose and so for those who are not familiar at this point let's put this piece up on the screen um this is what ryan jeremy scahill daniel Bogoslaw wrote up it's called between the hammer and the anvil and i'd encourage everybody to read this full piece um, behind the new york times october 7th expose let's start here Anat schwartz had a problem The Israeli filmmaker and former Air Force intelligence official had been assigned by the New York Times to work with her nephew, Adam Sella, and veteran Times reporter Jeffrey Gettleman on an investigation into sexual violence by Hamas on October 7th that could reshape the way the world understood Israel's ongoing war in the Gaza Strip. By November, global opposition was mounting against Israel's military campaign, which had already killed thousands of children, women, and the elderly. On her social media feed, which the Times has since said it's reviewing, Schwartz liked a tweet saying that Israel needed to, quote, 
turn the strip into a slaughterhouse. Violate any norm on the way to victory, read the Post. Those in front of us are human animals who do not hesitate to violate minimal rules. The New York Times, however, does not have rules. Uh, or, or, sorry. The New York Times, however, does have rules and norms. A bit of a Freudian slip by me there. Um, Schwartz had no prior reporting experience. Her reporting partner, Gettleman, explained the basics to her, Schwartz said in a podcast interview on January 3rd, produced by Israel's Channel 12 and conducted in Hebrew. Gettleman said, uh, she said, was concerned that they get at least two sources for every detail we put into the article, cross-check information, do we have forensic evidence, blah, blah, blah. She says, you know, they were basically, Gettleman was directing her to find evidence that could be corroborated, that was strong. We'll get into why it's not strong whatsoever. Um, But the reporter was directing her from afar and this person who had zero reporting experience was doing the digging on the ground in Israel. Scroll down a bit. Um, you know, Schwartz said she was initially reluctant to take the assignment because she did not want to look at visual images of potential assaults and because she lacked experience to conduct such an investigation. Nonetheless, she began working with Gettleman on the story. She explained in, a pod- in the podcast interview, Gettleman, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, is an international correspondent. And when he is sent to a bureau, he works with news assistants and freelancers on stories. In this case, several newsroom sources familiar with the process said Schwartz and Sella did the vast majority of the ground reporting while Gettleman focused on the framing and writing. The resulting report published in late December was headlined Screams Without Words How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th It was a bombshell and galvanized the Israeli war effort at a time when some of Israel's allies were expressing concern over the large killing of civilians in Gaza. Inside the newsroom, the article was met with praise from from editorial leaders, but skepticism from other Times journalists. The paper's flagship podcast, The Daily, attempted to turn the article into an episode, but it didn't manage to get through a fact check, as The Intercept previously reported. The fear among Times staffers who had been critical of the paper's Gaza coverage is that Schwartz will become a scapegoat for what is a much deeper failure. She may harbor animosity towards Palestinians, lack the experience with investigative journalism, and feel conflicting pressures between being a supporter of Israel's war effort and a Times reporter, but Schwartz did not commission herself and her nephew to report one of the most consequential stories of the war. Senior leadership at the New York Times did. Now, let's pause there for a second, Binder. And what's your reaction to this as a reporter? Because this is, first of all, the New York Times is the paper of record. It's like the pinnacle of what a journalist, many journalists feel their career could be. To be able to get a front page story, to be a co-author, to write a piece on this war, on this major international crisis, and no veteran reporter, no reporter on staff, seemingly, no reporter who toiled over this was hired to be the, the point people for Gettleman in this report. It was two Israelis who were related familiarly and had no reporting experience to do such a thing. It's like, honestly, it's embarrassing for the paper in terms of like the meritocratic elements. But then just the, the process is so sh- shockingly shoddy. <laughs> 
Right. It's it's a combination of everything. Like I, I don't think, you know, on its own, not having reporting experience means you can't, you know, uh, uh, do an act of journalism uh, of, of very good, you know, well done journalism. You know, there are people out there who experience things, citizen journalists who, you know, aren't professionals who still have something that they've seen or, you know, uh, been have a, a firsthand account of that is is certainly valid and, and reportable and, and legit. But it's just a combination of everything. It's like they specifically sought out someone who seemingly has a very clear bias, again, on its own, not necessarily an issue, certainly something to be extra cautious about. But, you know, still you can do good legitimate straightforward journalism and still have a personal bias on an issue um but clearly that's not what happened here you have someone who went out to find uh uh facts went out to find witness accounts went out to find sources to corroborate what they were trying to find out and confirm and they could not do that they could not do that and in the in a bit, and, and with the inability to do that, instead of deciding that there's a different story to tell or no story at all, they found what they could and seemingly misreported it yeah. or at least contorted the what was being said and laid it out. Like the angle in which they laid it out in wasn't just like, here is a compilation of, um, you know, what is being said in Israeli media, et cetera, um, from people who were, you know, there on October 7th, who, you know, again, these aren't people who experienced it. Yes. Um, these are people with specific claims based on their firsthand, uh, what they say is their firsthand account. They witnessed it. But then they're also seemingly based on this intercept report, um holes in every single story which they which they pulled like it's there's there's it's crazy single, right yeah like every single every single third party that they quoted in this story which again the angle here the way this story was promoted the way this story was sold is that this is it the defining proof that this happened on october 7th that there was systemic uh rape uh, you know, perpetrated by Hamas on October seventh, um, and there is that 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 package that the story was sold as that claim is not is not confirmed. It's just not. It's it is there are stories from people who were there on October seventh who say they saw this happen, and then when they tell it different times, it almost I believe. Every single instance. I want to get to those their, details. Their yeah. story changes every yes. single time they tell it. And the um, people who they get right. the, the information from are proven liars as well. Like, let's, let's, cause you're, right. you're hitting on so much of it. Like, the details in this are just shocking. Let's scroll to that part that, that Binder is referencing where, uh, uh, they begin to go through how she got her sourcing. But um, this is how, uh, uh, briefly, I'll, I'll read this section. In response to The Intercept's questions about Schwartz's podcast interview, a spokesperson for The New York Times walked back the Blockbuster's art- article's framing that evidence shows Hamas had weaponized sexual violence to a softer claim that there may have been systemic use of sexual assault. May have. You guys did a front-page report 
a front right. page report on this. Right. There, this is not just a statement to the intercept. They need to do a full correction in the paper. hundred percent. Right. This listen, is not listen. sufficient. It, it, it's absolutely fair to say we can't prove this did or did not happen. Right. Th- these, these are what people who are there are saying. This is also what they're saying every time they tell the story. It's possible that they witnessed this. It's possible they, w- they witnessed versions of this. It's possible they did not witness it or, you know, miss saw, like in the, you know, in everything that was going on on the ground on October 7th, they could have misconstrued something. They could, you know, they've, they've experienced the trauma. I'm sure things happen. Um, you can't prove otherwise, though, that this did or did not happen. Yet New York Times, instead of saying, doing a report, maybe that this is everything we know and, and then present everything that we just mentioned here. No, instead, they framed it as this is the definitive proof that this did 100 percent happen in this way. And that definitive proof does not exist. Uh, even in the article itself, that definitive proof, no matter how much they tried to angle it that way, no matter how much the reporters is writing, tried to you know uh, uh, contort the story in that way, even when they had to get down to the facts, they do not have a firsthand account. They do not have anything from someone who says, this happened to me. Um, you know, and they go around saying, you know, why they could not have that, which is fine. That's, that's totally legit to write that too. But then again, you do not have that definitive proof that the whole story was angled on. It's just, it's just, there was And then it sto- wouldn't be a front page a... story and it wouldn't right. maybe even be right. the thrust of the story. It would right. be some on, un- it would be in the fourth or fifth paragraph in another piece. Some claims, secondhand claims of sexual assault have been made, but the New York Times could not independently verify it with a first-person account. Right. Instead, it was a front-page headline story, extremely sensationalist. So this is where the evidence falls apart. Scroll down, Bradley, you'll see a photo, and this is where the beginning of, like, uh, the Intercept, uh, like, point-by-point breakdown And, and I just want to add here, like, if anyone is listening to this and they're like, oh, this left-wing show or whatever, blah, 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 kind of, they come across this, they're not a regular viewer or whatever, we are saying exactly what journalists with the New York Times' podcast, their main podcast, their, like, their bread and butter, like, their, their the headline daily. podcast, The Daily, they couldn't run a story on this because the journalists in that department at the New York Times, their own fact-checking pro- uh, 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 process, which apparently is more rigorous than the one that the actual report had to go through itself, they could not you know, they, they couldn't run it because they said there was too many holes in the story. This, what, what the story was claiming was not there. So they did not run a story on this in the daily. It, that would be interesting to know who's the editor for the daily versus who is the editor for the front page and what are their differences and who do they answer to? Because my guess is this comes from the top of the paper. Um, cause this kind these kinds of decisions, you know that that would this would not pass standard scrutiny anywhere else uh, at any other major paper like this but um schwartz began her work on the violence of october 7th where one would expect by calling around to the designated room four facilities in 11 israeli hospitals that examine and treat potential victims of sexual violence including rape first thing i called them all and they told me no no complaint of sexual assault was received she recalled in the podcast interview i had a lot of interviews where which didn't lead anywhere. 
Like, I would go to all kinds of psychiatric hospitals, sit in front of the staff, and all of them are fully committed to the mission, and no one had met a victim of sexual assault. The next step was to call the manager of the sexual assault hotline in Israel's south, which proved equally fruitless. The manager told her they had no reports of sexual violence. She described the call as a crazy in-depth conversation where she pressed for specific cases. Did anyone call you? Did you hear anything? She recalled asking, how could it be that you didn't? So let me pause here for a second. This is already so many red flags here, Binder. This is a reporter in search of an already predetermined idea of what the story should be. She's fishing. She's She's fishing. She's not, she's not following the facts. She's following preconceived uh, notion what her thoughts her story to be um and then she sought out whoever would tell her what she wanted to hear basically from and that makes sense because she has no journalistic training this is not something that a journalist would do if like if this were actually somebody who had reporting in the back in their background and, and seemingly where she did find what she was looking for it, it it all comes from, or the majority of it comes from secondhand as well. Yes. Like, that's the thing. That, that's the extra thing on top of this all. Like, it's not like she herself found dozens or even a half dozen, um, you know, uh, people who were maybe at the music festival that was attacked on October 7th and sit sat down and spoke with each and every one of them. Um, a lot of what she's reporting is secondhand through another media source or outlet. Some of it, uh, you know, from what I've seen, maybe even the majority of it, but I, I do know some of it. I would have to read and check the piece myself. But some of it, I recall, was biased in and of itself because they were from like I'm about to get to it. Conducted interviews and stuff. I'm about to or get like to it here. Funded yeah. media, like it's it's like an ultra orthodox group yeah just right, uh, right. i i just want to lay this out because like it is as insane as you say bradley can we put this back up um as schwartz began her own efforts to find evidence of sexual assault the first specific allegations of rape began to emerge a person identified in anonymous media interviews as a paramedic from the israeli air force medical unit 669 claimed he saw evidence that two teenage girls at kibitz nahal uh, oz had been raped and murdered in their bedroom the man made other outrageous claims, however, that called his report into question. He claimed another rescuer pulled out of the garbage a baby who'd been stabbed multiple times. He also said he had seen Arabic sentences that were written on entrances to houses with the blood of the people that were living in the houses. No such messages exist, and the story of the baby in the trash can has been debunked. The bigger problem was that no two girls at the kibbutz fit the source's description. In further interviews, he changed the location to Kibbutz Be'eri, but no victims killed there matched the description either, as Mondo Weiss reported. And then she doesn't seem to think this is questionable in any way. After seeing these interviews, Schwartz started calling people at Kibbutz Be'eri and other kibbutzim that were targeted on October 7th in an effort to track down the story. Nothing. There was nothing, she said. No one saw or heard anything. She then reached the Unit 669 paramedic who relayed to Schwartz the same story he had been told other media, he had told other media outlets, which she says convinced her there was a systemic nature to the sexual violence. I said, okay, so it happened. One person saw it happen in Be'ere, so it can't just be one person because it's two girls. It's sisters. It's in the room. Something about this, system, uh, about this is systemic. Something about this feels to me 
that it's not random, Schwartz concluded on the podcast. Schwartz said she then began a series of extensive conversations with Israeli officials from Zaka, which has been proven to be, um, this is now me saying this, a lying organization time and time again. A private ultra-Orthodox rescue organization that has been documented to have mishandled evidence, including uh, uh, mishandled evidence and spread multiple false stories about the events of October 7th, including debunked allegations of Hamas operatives beheading babies and cutting the fetus from a pregnant woman's body. Its workers are not trained forensic scientists or crime scene experts. When we go into a house, we use our imagination said Yossi Landau, a senior Zaka official describing the group's work at the October 7th attack sites. The bodies were telling us what happened. That's what happened. Landau was featured in the Times report, though no mention is made of his well-documented track record of disseminating sensational stories of atrocities that were later proven false. Schwartz said that in her initial interview, Zaka members did not make specific allegations of rape, but described the general conditions of the bodies they saw. They told me, yes, we saw naked women, or we saw a woman without underwear, both naked without underwear, and tied with zip ties, and sometimes not zip ties, sometimes a rope or a string of a hoodie. Schwartz continued to look for evidence at various sites of attack and found no witnesses to corroborate stories of rape. And so I searched a lot of the kibbutzim, and apart from this testimony of the Israeli military paramedic and additionally here and there, Zaka people, the stories like, didn't emerge from there, she said. Okay, so here we go. I mean, there's I mean, so much here. Like, first of all, <laughs> she she admits in this interview, like, like this also just shows, like, this is yep. someone who has no idea what they're doing. That she went out there in a interview that was going to be public like, published. Did she did she not did she think because it was in Hebrew that no yes. one outside of Israel would would come across it? Or I mean, that's a possibility. Or I mean, they do this all the not- time. Just briefly, oh. Binder, like the the Israeli officials say their most genocidal stuff in Hebrew because they literally bank on the fact that English outlets won't necessarily pick up on it. Right. But this is something a little bit different, though. This is someone yes. who put their work in an English, uh, the, the work that's that she's talking about and the work that's being criticized is in it. The, 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 the world's largest current events English speaking outlet um uh and she's 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 either a like you said just thinks she's it's fair game because she's speaking to an israeli outlet in hebrew or b she just fundamentally doesn't know that everything she she just said calls into question everything she's done her entire body of work here um the idea that she would just assume Look, first of all, the, the assumption is, you know, let's just take that one example she gave of like the two sisters or whatever, right? She said that she had yes. heard secondhand that one of them was uh, assaulted or sexually assaulted. And then she so oh, that means that the, the other sister had to have been assaulted, too. Um, I and mean, they did not just... match the description of anybody at both of the, the kibbutz, uh, kibbutzim that were it was said to have taken place at. And the guy that said that changed his story twice. Right, right. This is just not how it's done. It's just not how it's done. You you don't just assume things. And then, of course, there's that other um, that that conservative group. What was it? Zaka, you said. Yeah, uh, I remember them. They were the ones early on who were uh, giving uh, uh, credence to the uh, uh, the the beheaded babies um, myth. You know, myth and that we they know also- is not true were the group that was seemingly complicit in not being forthright about the bodies post-October 7th of the the Israelis that were killed. Um, 
and not did not immediately hand them over basically to investigators so that they could look into potentially how these folks died. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they admit that they just look at the scene and then they imagine what could have happened without any sort of forensic proof, without any sort of uh, actual investigation. They just decide whatever they'd like to decide. And I mean, if you don't understand what the problem is with that in terms of creating um, manufacturing, I should say, manufacturing consent uh, around, oh, look look at this, these horrendous things that people, that these people did. We have to respond in kind. Then, I mean, I, I don't know what to say to you. Like, and, and also there's obviously a huge difference here between um, the, what's in that report and what we know for sure. Again, is it possible that, uh, well, I mean, we, you know, we know people were killed. That's, 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 that's horrific in its own. No one wants anyone to die, obviously, but you have to understand yeah. that the Israeli media and Israeli military and the Israeli government have used these specific gruesome stories, which are not confirmed. And as we know now, at least partially uh, invented based on uh, a conservative uh, group's imagination, um, you know, to to say that we have to do certain things a certain way. It's it's inconceivable that this would be printed in the New York Times uh, or that they wouldn't that they're standing behind her. They're standing by her. They put out a response. They're standing by her reporting. Are Even they though, really? Because she's under investigation. When did they put this out? She 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 tweeted it out today. A, a screenshot from their statement. They're standing by her. Are you? Because um, I thought they were just going to scapegoat her, and then we don't look at the top. No, your... they're saying the they're, they're saying the issue was um, her 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 Twitter likes, not the reporting itself. That is um, astounding. I mean, yeah, this me is clear. Let's look at the. We've got to look at the the ownership of the Times at this point. And what influence that they're exerting. We talk about the clear influence of the Murdochs. Here we go. Um, on the, on the Wall Street Journal. But th- this is, this is like that related to Israel. I am thankful to the New York Times for standing behind the important stories that we've published. The Times didn't just stand behind me, but also behind the many women whose stories need to be told. How about Palestinian women? Wait, Recent- but hold on. Hold, hold on though. She didn't tell the many women's stories. Yes. Cause, cause she didn't speak to the many women who supposedly are involved in these stories. She is telling accounts from, she is not telling those women's stories. She, yeah. She's just not, she's just not. In fact, in that intercept article, one of the families of one of the, the women supposedly who was assaulted uh, the, and then killed, they're saying based on the text messages they received it, they think it is impossible from, from her when she was still alive. They think it was impossible for her to have gone through what the New York Times is claiming she did. Yep. Yes. From This is from the family of the actual woman herself. So we talk about telling these women stories. They're not even respecting the family's uh, 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 recollection of what their own flesh and blood went through. That's exactly right. Um, they've been trying to sound the alarm on this as well, in the same way that the hostages families are being entirely stifled within Israeli society. Um, these the families of these victims are also being silenced. And the New York Times in the United States is complicit in this. It just is incredible that they have. 
I mean, I don't know. Uh, there this have been... Be, this, this is this a massive is, scandal. This is Judith Miller level, like, propaganda from, you know, the Iraq war, laundering the weapons of mass destruction stuff. But maybe even worse, given how insanely shoddy the reporting is and the fact that they're this is the conclusion seemingly of their investigation no it's certainly that's certainly uh correct and i think that's actually a depressing comparison because we do look at judith miller in the new york times and there the the promotion of the uh war in iraq and you know the weapons mass destruction and all that we look at that now as for what it was um, we teach it in world in history classes and journalism school as everything that was wrong. Yet to this day, still there was no accountability. Judith Miller never faced any uh, even uh, 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 career uh, uh, issues uh, with you know she never faced any accountability. She got hired by Fox News, right? So I mean, it's it's depressing because that's absolutely an absolutely right comparison. We will look back at this moment. And it will be uh, something that is correctly remembered uh, for all its wrongheadedness, uh, I guess you can say, years from now uh, in the history books. Yet everyone involved will continue on. In fact, they'll probably uh, uh, only fail up and get even continue to get even higher paid, uh, even more influential, cushier jobs. Yeah. And Gettleman... Um has won a Pulitzer. So like, this is the kind of reporting that gets rewarded. The guy that took this, these folks and perhaps was instrumental. We don't know in getting them to be those on the, on the ground that were giving him the information for the piece. Um, and I just yeah, also, you mentioned, you, you know, you yeah. mentioned earlier, I think, you know, um, and this is, uh, you know, more of like a, a journalist career type thing than like a, a part of the news story here. But I do think like, I think it, it, it shows that, you know, I think the younger people who are interested in journalism and news, they will no longer look at the New York Times as the goal, like the standard bearer. Like I remember when I broke into journalism, um, I had an editor who would constantly, you know, bring up like, you know, uh, uh, whenever they would edit something or, or try to teach me something. The point being would always be that, you know, if your end goal is working somewhere respectable like the New York Times, then and I would say to them, I don't actually have that as my end goal. I have no career goal in terms of working at the New York Times or any of those big legacy media organizations. In fact, my goal is to uh, somehow one day make a full time uh, uh, living doing this completely independently. Right. I do not want to be beholden to an organization like that. And that was based on my own personal feelings on, for example, the New York Times, partially, like you just mentioned, or for one of the reasons, like you mentioned just earlier, uh, their promotion and uh, uh, of, of the war in Iraq. And, you know, I think this is going to be a moment like that again. And, you know, with the, the current state of media, um you know, it's going to be it's going to be rough because these legacy organizations like The Washington Post and New York Times, uh, they're growing unlike pretty much any other uh, 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 moneyed media outlet out there. Yeah. Everything so else it, is shutting down. And, but I, right. I want to say The Washington Post has actually done 
you know, Evan Hill. They've been, they've been I was just using them as a Lovejoy. Yeah, they've been, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wanted to give them credit. They've been so much better than the New York Times right. on Gaza well, and, and Israel. New York, New York Times has good reporters too. Like, I, you know, I think yeah. there's, I, I think the best way to go about uh, uh, media nowadays is not to uh, look towards a respected outlet. It's to find a specific or, you know, multiple specific journalists that you trust and know do solid reporting regardless of wherever they are working or publishing because, you know, they wouldn't put their name on garbage regardless of where it is. Yes. Um, so you know, that's what, how, what I recommend. Like, um, don't, don't trust an outlet based on the outlet. Trust the story based on who's behind it and their body of work. Lydia Rose writes in, in 1922, the Times published its first article about Hitler and downplayed his anti-Semitism, saying it was only to appeal to anti-Semites in Germany. That's a good, good little tidbit there, Lydia Rose. And let me just end this by saying, as a woman, pulling out that card right now, um, whoa, watch out, folks. Um, like, I actually deeply resent the this racist usage of sexual violence in order to further dehumanize palestinians and justify uh the genocide that's ongoing right now it it is not done in the reverse um even though there have been actually like credible reports of sexual violence of women and girls in israeli custody that have trickled out but again like journalists have either had to leave gaza or have been killed for the most part there are still a few left but there's no way, and this is on purpose by the Israelis, to verify certain information coming in there and coming out of there because of the fact that it's the they control their borders, land and sea, and they've killed so many people that there's it's also why the death tolls can't be verified and they have to come from the as you know these outlets will call it to to give a nod to the Israeli lobby, the Hamas run palestinian health ministry which has been correct the entire time they can't be independently verified because all the journalists have been killed or had been forced to leave because they would die if they stayed so like there have been reports of sexual violence against palestinian women and girls but that gets no coverage why because what this did what the design of this piece was was to further dehumanize palestinians and hamas which the Israeli government and Zionists conflate with Palestinians to paint them as savages, as rapists, as violent, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-cosmopolitan, anti-Western savages, which is a trope deployed against Arabs and Muslims and has been for my entire life. This is the exact continuation of that kind of dehumanization that we saw the new york times enable during the iraq war and they're continuing to enable it for the zionist colonial project that is israel so um please please the idea that they're using this the me too movement and like the uh increased anxiety around sexual assault um to 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 further justify this indiscriminate bombing is like peak kind of capitalist feminism at work and exactly why we have to oppose it and make sure that feminism as are all other societal uh, lenses that it's intersectional and put in context of who gets uh privileged and who gets humanized in the western press and who does not 
Um, with that, I mean, fun half stuff here, Bender, right? But great job breaking that down with me because I thought it was super important, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's it's great reporting from Intercept that they found that. And, I know. You know w- one thing that struck me, actually, and I don't remember if I, I you know, there's been so much that's happened in these past few months. That I, don't, I, I don't recall if I did read this and just simply, um, you know, I, I, I overlooked it or forgot about it or if it's something I just didn't see at all. But early on in that piece, they have this point made about how in the New York Times – um, they had a longstanding, um, you know, uh, 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 sort of uh, rule where they didn't refer to Hamas as a terrorist organization because it wasn't a stateless actor. It's actually, you know, the official government of, of Gaza. Um, and then after October 7th, they actually, uh, I don't know if they forced him out or he felt like he needed to resign because of changes going on. But the person who was standing by that rule they no longer had that position and they changed that rule to, um, you know, that um, that guideline to no longer refer to them as, you know, how they've done so. And I mean, listen, I've for as long as I've been following this, which has been a while now, way, way before October 7th, obviously, years and years and years, the, there was that fundamental difference between Hamas and what we perceived as terrorist organizations in the Middle East in general, like, you know, because Hamas is a uh, state actor. It is the government of the region. There are, um, uh, you know, parts of Hamas that we would look at like other governments. There are legitimate like lawmakers and politicians and, you know, things like that. Um, And then there was this like uh, this, you know, more militant uh, area, a uh, uh, part of Hamas, which people would then, you know, use to, to paint the whole group as a terrorist organization. Um, you know, there was that fundamental difference and that wasn't just from, uh, you know, a far left or whatever. That was something that the U S government even viewed and the Israeli government even viewed as the fundamental difference because they worked, uh, had a contacts with Hamas that they would work with. Yeah. Well, we all know that, too, that that Netanyahu um, was instrumental in allowing Hamas to be funded because he saw Hamas as an asset as opposed to, you know, the more secular parties in the in in Palestine um, because he could demonize them as a terrorist organization and continue to justify killing them. So, um, yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Let's take a call really quickly calling from a nine to eight area code. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Hi, uh, this is, oh, let me take it off speaker. Great. Thank you Hi, very is, much. Yeah, sorry, I had the speaker on because I was in my car driving home. No, no, but you uh, knew, I is, didn't even have to ask. <laughs> this is uh, Carl from the Arizona Tri-State. Carl from Arizona. Something, What's on your mind? Uh, something fitting for the fun half. It's something I noticed that I think uh, Sam and Matt missed yesterday in the uh Joe Rogan with a clip with uh, Dr. Phil mm-hmm. right towards the end of their clip. Uh, one of the things that they talked about was uh, they said was that people are, aren't going back to work. And then they said they're taking up lazy lady jobs, <laughs> which means they're specifically lazy like doing the Tim. Yeah. Lazy girl jobs. They're specifically like doing the Tim pool thing of saying that, women are quitting work to become like only fans models and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're not like d- down in like the coal mines that are podcasting, you know? Exactly. <laughs> uh, so well, that was just something the, the obsession, interesting that the, I noticed yesterday. 
Thanks the for obsession. bringing that to our attention. The, Go ahead. The, obs- the, the obsession with OnlyFans from certain people is is quite interesting because it, it bothers them that you know it's it's an area where um, <laughs> w- women basically are the the money makers there. Or if you're a guy and you want to make money on there, I'm sorry, you're au- and this is another part that bothers them. And you want to be successful, your audience isn't going to be women. Your audience is going to be other men. Um, so you either. Um, are a woman who is able to make a, a good a source of income from OnlyFans, or you are a man who has to appeal to to gay men to make a good source of income from OnlyFans, <laughs> and that's really the, the 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 crux of what bothers them. It's not a you know if you're a straight man who doesn't want uh, uh, gay people looking at your content. Then um, you know you're not going to find much of an yes. audience on OnlyFans. <laughs> That's true. But, That's true. But even on top, but even on top of that, though, even with all that said, even of the women and you know men uh, on OnlyFans who do make a, a, a decent income, they're like of the point one percent of people on OnlyFans. Most people on OnlyFans don't make all that much money. Some people, uh, you know, it's like a it's like a side gig for them. If even that, if even that I've, I've read there are people who just do it for fun and get like beer money. Like it's not even enough to be considered like a side project or a side gig. Or like uh, that story of that one uh, teacher who was doing it for a side hustle and then got fired yeah. the second uh, anybody found out. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I Rachel Dolezal really, too. I think it is really gross that there are that we police people um what they do on their spare time there's nothing to do with their you know it doesn't affect their job you know their their full-time main job at all and on top of that those full-time main jobs don't pay them enough that they don't have to do other stuff like the nerve yep. of like the 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 like the world we live on in it, like the employ the employers the nerve of these people to say like oh we're going to pay you like a you know 50k uh, as a you know a, a, a mother a teacher who who is a mother or father of two kids in the city you know in a, in a city where it's a, the cost of living is expensive you would only pay you 50k if even that and on top of that we're going to police what you can do in your spare time that can make that, that you do to make extra money to make up for our lack of paying you enough like it is certainly it is gross I'm sorry it really like, is. that really pisses me off when that happens. Appreciate the call, and, uh, Carl. Oh yeah, real yeah, quick. W- one more, one more aspect of that is also when I first heard that, my brain because I you know know a couple of them on Twitter, the people in that type of industry, and I'm like, the amount of work that they have to do to keep up their appearance would make you sweat, you old fat <clears throat> fellow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I well, I mean, he's already sweating from all the like meat and freaking like. <laughs> you know, whatever the, the, the supplements coursing through his veins, but appreciate the call, Carl. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Emma. Thanks, Matt. And- oh. oh, sorry. Well, thank sorry. you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Carl. Uh, JR and Philly, Joe Rogan. I heard that he was about to say something nice about me. And she was like, I got to hang up. I know. This I know. Is- <laughs> this is only, only praise for me on this program. <laughs> 
Um, JR in Philly says, Joe Rogan and Dr. Phil are echoing the manosphere assholes on Tim Pool who say that women are born with a million dollars in their pocket, presumably because they can objectify themselves with OnlyFans or have men take care of them. The misogyny is just wild. Like, like, again, it is so funny that that's the thing. Like, again, like I said, OnlyFans, that's like, uh, uh, you know, that's a... Uh, that's because the women on OnlyFans who make a lot of money are actually doing the full-fledged, like, they're, they're, they're showing everything. Or they're already famous from something else. Right. And right. they basically are able to, to basically use that as a jump-off to make money on OnlyFans, which requires them to do, you know, a lot of work on whatever other career they did to get to that fame level to begin with. But when it comes to like that thing, like in general, in life, they're able to that time and time again, that's shown to be bullshit. Like again, unless you're dealing with like actual adult entertainment, which is like the one industry where women are making more money. Cause obviously that's what people are paying for. Um, like, you always hear like men complain about all oh, these women Twitch streamers make so much money. It's so easy for them. But if you look at the top paid streamers on Twitch, it's all men. It's all men. Even though you think that the, 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 the top, uh, uh, you know, grossing streamers are all women because it's just so easy for them. They're not. Yeah. They're not. They're not. Also, even if it's making- so, if it's so easy, bro, like, and if you want to do it so badly, because you're already famous, Tim Pool, Joe Rogan, if you wanted to jerk off on OnlyFans, you could actually make a lot of money. You could parlay your podcasting into showing everybody you jerking off. So, like, right, that's a get great to point. it. They're, they're famous. They're, they're known by, you know, for, for the, the, the industry they're in. And just like, you know, you see, uh, actresses or, you know, a big thing now is, uh, pro, uh, pro wrestlers when they leave the WWE and they don't no longer have those, like, uh, uh rules they have to abide to. They can't do that stuff. They take their wrestling fan base over to OnlyFans and they make tons of money being able to do that. Go, you guys are famous. Chop, chop. Chop, Go chop. over there, show a little skin. It'll be easy peasy for you. Chop, chop, chop. I mean, people might vomit and you might send some people to the hospital showing all of that on, on camera, Tim Pool. But like at the same time, you'll be making bank. No, I mean, listen, I'm not going to kink shame. There's probably someone out there who wants to see that little hoodie on that little head of <laughs> What little hoodie? Which little hoodie are we talking I'm about? Excuse me, little, 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 uh, what's the hat called? Beanie, that's what I meant to say. Beanie, but you were thinking of another hoodie and we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> um, all right, let's, uh, let's quickly, I, I know that we're Gaza, I'm Gaza obsessed, but this, um, th- this, I loved this footage, uh, from, um, the, the, the EU here. Um, so, this is Abir Al-Salani. She's a member of the European Parliament, and she represents Sweden. And she went to the podium um, basically to protest the continued, obviously, support of the genocide uh, in Gaza. And she begins by not speaking at all. And then when she does speak, I thought her words were incredibly poignant. Do you want to use your time, speaking time? So if not, I kindly ask you to uh, leave the podium so that the next speaker can intervene. There are no more words to speak about what's going on in Gaza. 
Mr. President of this session. There are no more laws to break. There are no more appeals that we can do to what's going on. The hypocrisy is obvious. Our collective humane has failed. We said that we won't fail, but we're failing again. Human rights have a skin color, and the darker you are, the less human rights you have. We have been tried to be silenced. They have tried to make us look like anti-Semites. They have tried to make us look like we don't care about the safety of the Israeli people. All of that still to make it possible to kill more Palestinians, unfortunately. Thank you. I just found her active protest there holding up a bloody hand, as people may remember. At the very beginning, really, of Israel's assault, um, uh, Tony Blinken was called in front of Congress and there were protesters behind him holding up bloody hands themselves uh, in the background, basically to demonstrate his complicity. And um, Abir al-Salani, that is uh, her speaking as uh, in the European Parliament, um, which is the uh, basically the, the legislative body um, in the EU there. And <clears throat> beginning with uh, by protesting in that way, but also making the point where we talk about human rights and the Biden administration talked about returning to a rules-based international order. And that includes like international law and the respect of human rights in theory. But in the, the post-World War II landscape, the construction of what constitutes human rights, ha that has been determined by the West. And we've made very subjective, racist choices about who is worthy of human rights and who is not. And it's, by the way, as stark as can be in the way that our media and our political figures speak about Ukraine and Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine and the, what Ukrainian people are dealing with on a daily basis in their own country and how our leaders responded with weapons, with basically universal support until Republican opposition because of like Trump being pro-Putin or whatever. And now they're doing this austerity thing like that. Because of that, that's when things began to break. But John Stewart played it in his segment, which I didn't love fully, but had some good moments on Gaza, where he played like Blinken and John Kirby speaking so solemnly about what Ukrainian people are going through. And then at the end, he revealed that that's what it was, but framed it at the beginning as if he was talking about Palestinians. Um, and it, it truly is fundamentally racism that's what this is about and younger generations see supporting palestine as a a racial justice issue and an anti-colonial project which is exactly what it is um all right one more we'll do another clip here then too um have we have we done a clip yet we haven't have we that was oh, that, that one. First? That one. That was the clip. Yes, but uh, other than that, I don't think we've done a clip before that. How about this? Here is um, ADL President Jonathan Greenblatt. Bender, you'll remember him oh, fondly. I saw this. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, you'll remember him fondly as the guy who really was critical of Elon Musk tweeting out. 
support for the Great Replacement Theory, which is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that says that basically Jews are pushing migrants into the United States as the puppet masters to change the demography of the United States. To what end? Who knows? The conspiracy theorists on the right just don't think highly enough of black people, of Latino people, of migrants, to think that they could have their own agency and reasons for coming into the United States. So it has to be the all evil Jews, of course, pulling the strings. So Elon Musk had tweeted in response to a, to something about that, like, you know, very interesting, or I agree. I forget what it was, Bender. What? Yeah, he, he, he basically said uh, it is this or something like that. Yes, he endorsed right. it. Right. He endorsed it. And then so Jonathan Greenblatt of the uh, Anti-Defamation League, which is a pro-Zionist group in the United States, um, condemned him. Then within a few days, Elon Musk was in Israel as they ramped up their genocide in Gaza, solemnly touring around. And Jonathan Greenblatt completely said, oh, I believe him, reverse course. And then surprisingly or not so much, I kept seeing ads for the state of Israel all over Twitter. Like, there was clearly some sort of partnership with Twitter and Israel with advertising. Advertising, And is it a little dystopian that a foreign country can just advertise just to cover PR-wise for their genocide? Yes. And Elon was complicit in that to cover up for his own anti-Semitism. And you'll recall Greenblatt uh, prior to Elon... <clears throat> Purchasing Twitter in 2022 referred to him as the uh, Henry Ford of our time. Yes, um, which his anti-Semitism, which, which I think, which I think was a little <laughs> bit more prescient than Greenblatt anticipated when he said it initially. <laughs> right. um, yes, but I also think, no, that, but he that, he received a lot of blowback even from within his own organization. Yeah, he probably was like, uh, of, "Hey, John, <laughs> anyone remember yeah. what uh, Henry Ford uh, was also Stood known for? for, other than the cars?" <laughs> but um, he, he received blowback from that, and then blowback from when uh, you know when uh, Elon. Uh, announced he was going to to uh, police uh, pro-Palestine language on X, Twitter. Um, and, you know, this was just after Elon endorsed that anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And Greenblatt comes out and goes, uh, thank you so much, Musk, for this. And he received the blowback within his own organization for how quickly that turnaround was. And all it took was for Elon to uh, say he was going to censor Palestinian voices. Yep. You know, all you need to do, I'm, I, I've been trying to get this PR advice to Kanye, but it's not getting through for like for people to forget all like the pro Hitler stuff and all the anti-Semitism. Just just tweet out. I stand with Israel and everything's fine, bro. Um, but with all well, of he that, basically, Kanye yeah. actually basically did that. You don't know if you saw that TMZ thing. I did they... see he declined to comment, but you've got to go right. further. You've got to be Pro is pro Israel, Kanye. Um, I gotta say, though, pretty amazing for the guy who was on that trajectory. He was, and then when it came to uh, being asked about Palestine, he was like, "I don't know enough about that one." Sorry. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of in keeping because he's just actually anti-Semitic. Um, so this is Jonathan Greenblatt, that guy, the ADL's Jonathan Greenblatt. He was asked on CNBC by uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who has some great moments, honestly, as a as an interviewer, I think, um, about the uncommitted effort in um, in Michigan, where over 100,000 uh, voters on the Democratic side in Michigan said, we're going to leverage our vote to force Biden to change course on this genocide. And um, this is how Greenblatt responded. What happened in Michigan? Meaning the, the 
people voting on committee. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, like, I'm old enough to remember when you're upset about policies that a government was doing or that your political party was doing, you actually got involved. You didn't pull back. You said, I want a seat at the table and I'm going to earn it and then demand. I think what's happened you is don't ridiculous. Think that would, so you don't and think how's that, that going to help like economic opportunity for the people of Michigan? How's that going to help make that state better? How's that going to help the Democratic Party win? People who just voted. I think the people, these people voting uncommitted, I think yeah. it's pathetic. And if they really want to make a difference, they should roll up their sleeves and get involved. I, 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 but you know what, Andrew? I hope they like what the, what the other guy will do. I'm sure he'll listen to them. You know, I mean, it's like it's absurd. The, the institutional That's literally what they did. That's right. what they did. They actually it's it was one of the more beautiful examples of democracy at work that I've seen in some time in this country. It was a under a not well funded campaign to organize with Arab Americans, people of conscience, young people in the state of Michigan to use their collective power to vote uncommitted to force Biden to change course. It was as as acute of an example of political engagement that I can remember. And he's literally equating it with them sitting on the couch in November. Bro, no one can spin this in that way because this is the primary. This is the exact moment when you do this kind of thing. This is not them not being engaged. It's, in fact, the opposite. But it's fun to see him squirm in that way because the movement in the United States, the anti-war, anti-genocide movement is growing by the day. Yeah, I mean, it's everything you just said, obviously. But also, I mean, if if they had done something, if they, if they, had, if they had gotten involved, they would have used that against in some other way. Like he's suggesting they would use that against them, too. Like if if there was like a Palestinian lobby that was moneyed, that put forth like actual donations to politicians in exchange for policy, you would you would go out and call the, the, that act uh, buying. No, they're buying up uh, politicians. It's anti-Semitism. There'd be something leveled against them like we've seen in every single case in turn. We have we police how pro-Palestinian the pro-Palestinian movement protests. We police the language the pro-Palestinian movement uses beyond anything I've ever seen any other movement go through. Like basic words are considered to be uh, uncouth or straight up anti-Semitic. Not even like we're not even talking about slurs, which obviously not cool, not good. We don't uh, endorse that, but that's not what we were even talking about. Um, it's, it's, it's such a, it's you know, also CN- activism CNBC's- by many Jewish, Jewish Americans too. That's right, what's so right. beautiful about it. It's multicultural right, right. and multiracial. Right. And when CNBC is the one that's going, but uh, they voted, they took part in the process and you're the one, I don't even know if it hit him. Like it seems like it goes right over his head or he just ignores it purposefully. Yeah. Cause it makes him look dumb. Like it really makes him look bad. It may, may, he comes out looking horrible, honestly. Um, last clip here. I wanted to get to this today. This Tim Kaine one. So, um, Tim Kaine, people may not realize that Tim Kaine is shockingly decent on Israel, like for the Senate standards and for what you might expect of the guy that was selected to be Hillary Clinton's vice president. I mean, he did not attend Netanyahu's speech where Netanyahu worked with Republicans to circumvent Obama back in the day. And spoke directly to Congress. And there were some members of Congress that did not attend in protest. Tim King was one of those folks in the Senate. And um, 
you know, he is on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's in Virginia as the or he's the senator from Virginia. So he's quite close to like the defense industry, our defense department, Washington, D.C., the blob, right? Like Maryland and Virginia. Those are the states in the in in the D.C. metro area where there's a lot of like that industry um, in uh, uh, infrastructure. And so that is the context of this like of of his politics honestly and i think that's what makes his uh stance here pretty admirable and the fact that he chose to call out the biden administration like this uh, important as we begin to ramp up the pressure on the biden administration to end support for israel right now um because the united states has been shooting uh at the Houthis, um, has been shooting at uh, Houthi targets and uh, in Yemen as well in response to the fact that Houthis and other groups are blocking ships, commercial ships, <clears throat> and sometimes attacking them in the Red Sea, trying to disrupt trade in order to show support for Palestinians and put pressure on the West to end their support of this genocide. Um, I think it's quite straightforward. They've said that that's their intention, and they did drastically reduce their attacks during the temporary uh, ceasefire, and they had said that they will do that if there is a ceasefire. So, like, maybe we could try that instead of bombing them all the time. And that was kind of the logic that Tim Kaine arrived at as well. Chairman? Senator Kaine. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Um, Houthi behavior is abhorrent, but I've got to admit, I have grave skepticism about what we are doing right now. I have grave skepticism about the legal authorities. I have grave skepticism about the absence of true shared responsibility with nations whose ships are being attacked by the Houthis. Why should the U.S. and the U.K. be shouldering the burden of protecting other nations' ships? And I have serious skepticism about the effectiveness of this operation in terms of de-escalating into the attacks in the Red Sea. To begin with, on legal authority, I think we've all conceded that there is no congressional authorization for these hostilities. The hostilities definition under the War Powers Resolution has clearly been met when we're talking about 200 attacks on Houthis. We're losing troops. They're losing civilian casualties and others. This is hostilities. There's no congressional authorization for them. Uh, to claim that this is covered by Article 2 self-defense, um, Article 2 self-defense means you can defend U.S. personnel, you can defend U.S. military assets, you probably can defend U.S. commercial ships. But the defense of other nations' commercial ships in no way, and it's not even close, that's not self-defense under Article 2 of the Constitution. And a president can't make it self-defense by calling another nation a partner. Um, if you're defending the commercial ships of other nations, it is, in, in my view, laughable to call that self-defense. And so a narrow mission to defend U.S. shipping, both military and commercial, that is Article II self-defense. But broader efforts to defend commercial ships of other nations, while it might be strategically a good idea, there's no constitutional authorization that would allow a president to do, to do that unilateral. 
And second, taking offensive action. Mm-hmm. And striking targets within Yemen to degrade Yemeni capacity, Houthi capacity. Um, while, again, it might be strategically a smart thing to do, that's not self-defense under Article 2. And so I basically view this at the first level as uh, a set of actions that might have a strategic value, although we've yet to see a strategy. Yep. Senator Young and Senator Murphy and I wrote a letter to the administration asking many of these questions on January 23rd, and we don't have a response. But there may be a strategic wisdom in doing it, but I think the activities are far beyond what a president's unilateral power would be. That's number one. Number two, shared responsibility. Commercial shipping in the Red Sea involves ships from many, many nations. And although there are partners in this operation, the military actions are being undertaken by the United States and the U.K. Why should the United States and U.K. be shouldering the burden of this? There needs to be, if, if we can get to a point where we can actually authorize U.S. participation, we shouldn't do it without other nations participating. But, but finally, I guess my um, most serious skepticism right now is at the effectiveness of this. President Biden himself has said that the actions that we are undertaking are not likely to deter Houthi escalation. And I am a little disappointed that you so quickly try to pull cold water on the idea that this is connected to the war in Gaza. These attacks started, um, Secretary Shapiro, as you said, on November 19. Um, The Houthis have said this is because of the war in Gaza. Now, you've pointed out instances of ships that weren't going to Israel or instances of ships that had food that were going to nations that needed food. But I think the most natural interpretation of this is the Houthis seeing some suffer in the region or saying others are going to suffer in the region until we figure out a response. And, And I would venture to suggest that about the only time we've seen something that was a de-escalation moment was in the week-plus-long pause in Gaza when the first hostage deal was done. And so trying to reestablish deterrence, I don't think you're going to do it if the 200 strikes become 400 strikes, 800 strikes, 1,200 strikes. I think you will reestablish deterrence when we get a hostage deal that leads us to a truce, that leads us to humanitarian aid into Gaza, that leads us to the ability to discuss whether whatever that truce period is can be extended. And so I, I, do, I hope you don't just pour cold water on the idea that, oh, this isn't really related to Gaza, because the timing of it was related to Gaza. They're saying it's related to Gaza. And the only period of de-escalation that we've seen was during the first hostage release. I'm going to continue to press on the legal authority questions. And I, I think many of us have these questions, and the, there's some difference of opinion, I think, on the committee about whether this uh, U.S. strategy is is going to involve de-escalation at all, or whether it's actually going to foment. Uh- foment more. I think he made his point there very well. So awesome job, Tim Kaine, because that, you know, I don't, he, he calls the Houthi attacks, attacks abhorrent. I understand, you know, we don't want any kind of escalation, but as he later lays out, they've made quite clear what their intentions are. It's because of the genocide in Gaza. That is why they are disrupting, as opposed to this, like, amorphous, terroristic notion. You know, one of the hallmarks, really, of racism is, like, 
we are rational actors. They are savages. They don't have the ability to make choices on the world stage in the way that we do. They're just attacking ships uh, during this assault on Gaza for no reason, apparently. And to the legality of it, um, he's absolutely right. The, the War Powers Resolution says that the president must come to Congress if he is engaging in an armed conflict and an act of war. Um, he cannot do so without Congress, and that has been made clear both by the Constitution and by the War Powers Resolution. And even under the authorization for the use of military force um, that was passed to give Bush these broader powers to fight the war on terror, you know, that is, I wish the AUMF were repealed, uh, and, and it was not something that should have happened at the time. But even under that law, um, it's not uh, because of the reasons that he lays out there, because they are commercial ships, because they're often strikes that are um, hitting targets in Yemen in response to attacks on ships that are not even our own. You can't even claim this is defensive because of terrorism towards the United States. I thought it, I think it's threadbare even if they're attacking or blockading United States commercial ships. But as Tim Kaine lays out there, this is not even in response to our ships on many occasions. These are for ships for other countries or other purposes. So it's really just about attacking Yemen and the Houthis because they are disrupting the flow of commerce and capitalism. And that is not something that constitutes the defense of the United States under either the AUMF or under either or the War Powers Resolution, which builds off of it in that way, or I would say cuts into it. Gotta say, you know, it's the first time I guess you can uh, uh, say that... Don't sing Tim it. K T Tim Kaine has earned... <laughs> Don't Tim sing Kane. it. Tim Kane in the membrane. Tim Kane in the membrane. Oh, God. I knew you were going to sing it. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty decent, though. And and it's just... It was good. I mean, it's 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 good to hear it from someone like him, too. And I don't mean that, like, again, like you said, I don't know if this is... I, I didn't know this about him, that he's been good on this issue. But I mean, more generally, it's good to hear it from someone who's considered... A, a sort of centrist dim, like a, a, not some like progressive stalwart or something like that. Um, and, you know, the idea that the, that they would just so that the administration would just so brazenly lie about this, that even Tim Kaine would have to call them out on it is is, I think, noteworthy for sure. Yeah. OK, I lied. This is just one more thing, because I feel like we've only done the Gaza stuff. I apologize. Um You'll enjoy this, Binder. So this is a TPUSA thing. Um, you may have seen this, uh, Matt, but the uh, Turning Points USA field representative, Aubrey Savala, had this tweet. And she is in Arizona, I guess, which is like where uh, I think Turning Points USA is located and put most of their efforts in and all and they and they funneled money into the Arizona governors and Senate race. And they lost both. Like none of this turning ch college kids into reactionary right wingers is uh, stuff is really working. And it's not definitely not working in turning point USA's backyard in Arizona. So anyway, the 
they're just paid for by like big right wing donors and everyone's cashing in even if the results are not showing um so Aubrey Savala, who works for Charlie Kirk's uh, Turning Points USA, tweeted this out about the mail-in ballots that she received in the mail. So trying to make some case that, like, there's a lot of ballots out there and people are ballot harvesting and submitting all these fake votes in order to um, get democrats elected she says maricopa county at its finest my first time ever voting in the presidential preference election and i received not one but two mail-in ballots thank you at stephen richer and so she tags a maricopa county recorder in her post this guy stephen richer who's responsible for counting ballots and he responds directly to her (laughs) hi aubrey thanks for reaching out you changed your voter registration on the last day of voter registration, February 20th, from your Chandler address to your new Tempe address, or Tempe. Because early ballots must go out on February 21st, your Chandler ballot was already sent to go out, and so it did. Then we sent out a new ballot to your Tempe address when we proceeded your vo- uh, process your voter registration modification. That's why you had to redact out different lengths in the address because they were sent at different addresses. You'll also notice that one you'll also notice that one of uh, the packet codes ends in 01, the one to your old address, and one ends in 02, the one sent to your new address. As soon as the 02 one goes out, the 01 packet is dead, meaning even if you sent it back, it wouldn't be processed to signature verification and would not be opened. That's how we prevent people from voting twice. So just use the one with your new address ending in 02. That's the one, only one that will work. Hope this helps. Have a great evening. Happy voting. And you know what I really loved about that response, in addition to her just getting so embarrassed, was the, uh, the usage of the passive-aggressive hope this helps, which we've all gotten an email or sent an email that includes hope this helps. But rarely has there been a more satisfying usage of that passive aggression than in this particular instance where she really thought she really thought they got she got them. She really thought she did something there. And too bad. Um, there of course is a process so the ballots are not counted twice. Thoughts. It is, you know, really funny to see that happen and play out in, in real time like that. It's it, they, you know, I, I do wonder if she did that purposefully. Uh, I don't think she thought he'd reply. Oh, we lost Bender. Or he's frozen. Oh, I'm frozen. Oh, you're back. You're back. You're back now. Sort of. Oh, no. Huh? We lost Bender. No, he Hello? is. I'm He's back. Here. Am I back? Am I back? All right. I don't You're know what back. happened there. Keep going. All right. So what yeah. I was saying was, uh, you know, I don't know if she knew what she was doing there or not. Uh, wouldn't put it past her either way, honestly. Um, you know, but that's that's the thing here. Like so much of this is either these conservatives mis, uh, purposefully uh, de- deceiving their audience by creating a scenario purposefully. That makes it look like something more is going on there. Or the other option is that they are literally too dumb to know <laughs> what's going on. 
which I don't know which one look makes them look better or worse, honestly. I mean, and I, you know, the, 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 the response to that was great because it was a whole bunch of people, obviously, um, uh, mocking, uh, the TP, uh, the turning point USA person, but also there was someone, uh, you know, that person who, uh, questioned like, how does, how, how, how do they know? How does he, how do you know not to count both of them? Did you, uh, I'm sorry, I froze. Did you show that one? Uh, the, the, uh, response yeah, that no, one? we didn't show that one. How do you know not to count both of them? Yeah, some some other conservative activist tried to like poke holes in the guy's claim in the in the comment to his response, and he like completely owned them. Bradley's going to try was, to find it. Yeah, okay, they might have deleted it. Who knows? But it was like the the basic uh, uh, crux of it was like, uh, okay, so like, uh, how does the machine know that you know if someone was to send both of them back, not to count one? And the guy was like, well, it's easy. Once we print up the o2 one the number two one the machine the system knows to automatically deactivate the paper that has the o1 on it so if you were to again ask for another one we would send you one out that said o3 and that would cancel out the o2 one and the o1 one would have been previously canceled out when we sent out the o2 one and like they, she really thought this other person really thought she was onto something too like yeah that these it's people in the are stupid and they wouldn't the know what same- they're doing in the same way you can't the bank has a system if you try to electronically deposit a check twice the same check you're not going to be able to do it because the system then creates some sort of block so that it can't happen because it's already registered that it's been processed this is very simple computing um, right. they, they believe they believe that there is some huge conspiracy out there where all this encrypted data is flying all over the place, being sent everywhere to yes. add votes here, add votes there. Anything's possible. They could do anything to steal an election. But then they ask, how does the machine know the difference between a paper that <laughs> says number one on it and a paper that says number two on it? <laughs> Explain yeah. that. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, it does very much explain how they're so easily duped by, like, Mike Lindell-adjacent pseudo-mathematical uh, speak where there's really just no coherent um, basis for any of it. But it sounds like it could happen. So this is what Vinder was referring to here. Um, at Stephen Richer. One, what happens if someone returns two ballots in the same envelope? Two, is there a way to tell if the first ballot ends up in the second envelope other than the CD mark? Some uh, say someone moves in with the CD, but to another city legislative district or precinct. And he responds here, Stephen Richer, who knows his crap. It's a great question. (laughs) Each ballot has a code that also lines up with the return envelope. We check to make sure the right ballot style comes back in the envelope. Believe it or not, some people will send their primary ballot uh, in their primary ballot for a general election. So, yes, you need to use both the new ballot and the new envelope if you uh, moved, as you should suggest, into a new legislative district on the last day of voter registration in the instructions. Uh, but also, we're able to uh, help identify which is the correct one uh, on a one-to-one basis by phone or email if needed. So... Um, the Goldwater attorney. This isn't didn't, even. That's, that's not, not even the one the, you were talking about. That's not even what I was talking about. But it was the same thing basically. But that's I didn't know he got multiple. They really tried to poke holes in this. Like they were gonna. They were onto something here. Like they thought of something that no one ever thought of before. Really, like, it is amazing. 
it is amazing. Like this is this is actually like the, a, a perfect example of like an instance where like the government actually uh, was proactive and did something the right way when it comes to like this. Listen, we know that a lot of these government agencies at times, um, you know, they don't they're not always so on top of things when it comes to like you move somewhere and they need to send something to a new address instead of the old address. I've been there. You've been there. We've all been through some of that type of stuff. But the idea that you would move and they would then immediately send a ballot to your new address with, well, you know, if you move to a new district, there's a whole new list of things you could potentially have to vote for that wouldn't be on the old ballot. And then things that you wouldn't vote for in the new district that would be on the old ballot and that they are proactive enough to get you the correct ballot as soon as you moved. I think that's great. And if they didn't do that, you know, these same people would be complaining, oh, I moved and they don't want me to now they don't want me to vote because I bet this territory is like <laughs> uh, me, me voting will, will 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 be like the final push over the edge to turn this district red and they don't want me to vote. They're trying to stop me from voting. You know, that would be the case, too. Like it's a it's a no win here. Because they will complain about anything and everything and twist and contort it into some conspiracy against them. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, but keep keep operating in Arizona, Turning Points USA. It's almost like they're making a negative impact, and that's what I like to see. Chilling, chilling to see a par a, a fella named Parker Jackson whose Twitter bio is Goldwater Institute staff attorney in yep. the Federalist Society. Getting smacked. <laughs> Not good. All right, guys, we won't have time for calls anymore. Uh, any more calls today. I apologize. Turning off the phone lines. Um, John Brown, as it turns out, it's very difficult to get a tribute into the core of Washington, D.C. Instead, we're going to make a bunch of AI generated ger- generated videos of Angel Bo Biden and purchase a commercial time slots in the D.C. area just for Morning Joe. OK, this is uh, one of our IMers who said that we should like had a uh, hang like a do some projectile of an ai bo biden telling in going into the white house like a ghost to tell joe to stop the genocide you know what i think i think at this point we need to consider all options uh <laughs> unfortunately it's distasteful but necessary I, th- I think that actually might be a scenario that works too honestly yeah <laughs> maybe the only one Right, right, right. <laughs> um, small D Democrat. Happy Leap Day, Emma. Remember, rhubarb red. Eat away, rhubarb green. Don't eat them. <laughs> Citing my least favorite 30 Rock episode. Um, Leap Day, you know, William. I just to say, I'm sorry. I, I just remembered. I wanted to bring this up when you played the um, the Greenblatt clip, but I was yeah. having a, you know a, a, a issue with the computer then, too, so I forgot to say it. But what was really interesting, I mean, this isn't just with that clip on its own, but it's something I've seen over and over again from a lot of liberals, honestly. And it's this idea that, oh, you're only hurting yourself or something. If you protest Joe Biden, uh, threaten to withhold your vote from Joe Biden, whatever. And it's just stunning to me that this is sort of like the the, the idea that you would actually uh, feel a certain way about something, be so principled about something that you know what? You you would you you accept that it might hurt you. You're not thinking about yourself and your well-being number one. I, I, that's just so they, they can't even think of that. It's just beyond that. Right. It's just like the idea because because Greenblatt said something to the effect of like, "How is voting uncommitted going to help you in Michigan? What? How is that going to get money into your community or whatever?" 
Well, I mean, these the the people in Michigan see their family members or people who they feel a a connection to, people who are just like them, Um, and not even just that, people who aren't Middle Eastern or Arab who see what's going on there and feel compelled uh, as human beings to uh, act a certain way, that they're saying, you know what? Maybe, maybe as punishment, money won't be sent to our district from, from the federal government. To, to, but you know what? It's worth it for this. I mean, it's just so beyond them. It's so. It's a red line. Genocide's a red line for them, and that's totally rational. Even if Democrats don't like it, it's a rational choice. It is. And it's not right, enough. Right? To ju- it's not enough to just say like, "Oh, the other guy's worse. Good luck." Like, good the guy who wants to ban all Muslims. It's like, right. That does does that does that then obviate the other person from committing any sort of atrocity and being like, well, look at the alternative, right? Anybody's going to look better in in comparison to Trump. If if under Joe Biden's leadership, Israel wiped out your entire family in Gaza, what the fuck do you care about Trump? could possibly or even will definitely be worse yeah the worst has already happened to you who gives a crap if you are in that position and you don't and you are selfless and it's not just about your well-being now it's about your family members over there the people who are still alive over there who who can be gone at any minute now if a bomb drops in the right place or you know the wrong place obviously um, you know, the idea that things could be worse. How do you make that case to someone who is experiencing what they are experiencing right now? What could possibly be worse? What could be worse? You're exactly right. Um, Voight free or die. Hey, I'm our crew. Thank you for your continuous honest reporting on Palestine. I used to be a YouTube paid subscriber, but I canceled and used the money to join the majority report after I heard some of my favorite YouTubers being dishonest or cowardly on the topic post October 7th. H3 promoted the beheaded babies myth extensively, for example, and has not retracted since. Thank you again and again and for showing us ways we can help however small. You know, there are a lot of people, I think, who are of good conscience who maybe just didn't follow Israel and Gaza or Israel-Palestine in any like meaningful way before October 7th, who will see a report in the New York Times or something and just run with it um, and not understand like the long history of deep Israeli propaganda, which is only rivaled by Russian propaganda. Like I'm being really serious in terms of global reach only rivaled by Russian propaganda. I mean, U.S. propaganda, too. But, like, we have a a freer press here, honestly. Um, The fact that people took all of that stuff at face value just goes to show that they were ignorant. But if they haven't retracted at this point, then it's malicious. Um, Or not malicious, at least, like, show something about their bias. Um... Leftist Cajun, I live in Louisiana, and me and my wife did IVF four years ago to have my son, and then the second son naturally, yet had three embryos still frozen, but decided not to have more children. We could not donate them because my wife is over 37. We have to keep them frozen indefinitely for $600 a year, and I honestly have no idea what would happen if we couldn't pay the storage bill. It's nuts. Sam voice. Love the show. Left is best. Wow. I mean, and Louisiana's... Uh, no longer has a Democratic governor anymore. It's going to be a Republican. So I, I the, 
make sure you you talk to if you have the ability talk to a lawyer about that because um you know i don't want you to be in trouble if if some i don't know um but the fact that you're in a position like that is just it's insane all right five more and then we'll get out of here sorry we went a little late today but um ostentatious rabbi shmuley has built an entire debate platform on that new york times article to defend israel's actions most recently on pierce morgan with norman finkelstein they, they won't address the correction at all it's it's done its job it's done its job israel does that they did that with the hospital bombing israel would never bomb a hospital it would never bomb a hospital every hospital has been like either damaged or completely destroyed in gaza right now and when you know i spoke to dr tarek lubani last week he said there are no functioning hospitals left by what he hears. BRB forever. The Ju- Judith Miller comparison is apt in some ways, but while her reporting was actually part of the justification for starting the Iraq war, the genocide in Gaza would be happening even if Gettleman's story had never been written. The Gettleman story is apologia for a genocide, a fabrication to back up justifications that were already well-worn and widespread. Uh, well said. RFC Most says... Uh, even worse, the SCOTUS response seems prepared to quibble over the extent of immunity, essentially ch- uh, changing the scope to enable it being sent back to the lower courts for even more delay. Oh, my God. Um, Trilly Flops, if Tim Pool pivots to OnlyFans, I am blaming Emma directly for it. <laughs> Margo from Mass, as Erica Jane told us, the f- a photo of Denise Richards on OnlyFans is $8, so it must be hard to make tons of money on there, laughing my ass off. Margo, I love when you write in with Real Housewives stuff. Um... 400 blowing me says also poor things is out on digital i highly recommend watching it that's my next oscar one that i have to watch but i am seeing dune 2 this weekend and the final i am of the day small d democrat the leap day episode is one of the best episodes what do you mean it's like i mean so lynn wanwell morgaris is least favorite 30 rock i'm a no i can i can trade the tears i have for your loss for candy from leap day william maybe i need to rewatch leap day william i just find it like you know the the later seasons of 30 rock do verge into that kind of level of obscure uh, absurdity but it it felt uh, like a little bit out of place in that current moment of the show um but anyway we can talk about it 30 rocks my favorite so i even the least favorite episode i love very deeply um all right guys Appreciate you all. Thanks so much for watching. Check out Doom, Scam Economy, Leftist Mafia tonight. Yes, yes, I remembered this time. Uh, (laughs) ESVN, Left Reckoning. Uh, Brandon is not with us, but, uh, I mean, he's alive, but um, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) check out the discourse. (laughs) Not with us presently. Presently. (laughs) Still with us on a uh, temporal uh, basis. (laughs) And check out the discourse. We will see you all tomorrow. It might take all the strength I got To get to where I want But I know somehow I'm gonna get there I wasn't looking when I just got caught Between the truth and the light bar But finding out won't make me feel any better Yeah, I know Choice was made for 
The man. 